This episode is sponsored by the Real Estate Foundation of BC. REFBC is a philanthropic organization that supports sustainable, equitable, and socially just relationships with land and water. Learn more about the foundation's grants and initiatives at refbc.com. So my name is Dean Work, and um, I am Indigenous, but not from here. I am the vice president, current vice president of the Stolo Business Association. Um, and I've lived amongst the First Nations communities here in Chilliwack my entire life and rubbed shoulders and hung out with uh, all my friends. And um, I would have to say that uh, Stolo means people of the river. And I would say that in my life, I was a person of the river. Um, being that uh, my grandfather had a farm on the Vetter River for 47 years, um, I got my first taste of fishing. My father was a sport fisherman. He liked to fish. Um, I got, to, got taught how to fish. I spent a lot of time on the farm, my grandfather's farm on the Vetter River, and I was able to go to the river typically after chores, either with my father or to be able to go out the back of the yard and be able to fish where nobody was actually fishing in those days. You could walk for three or four miles and never see another person, and that would be hard to understand by what the rotary trail has done to the better river now and not in a bad way just it's a it's an alive place um i had an opportunity uh growing up uh, to get the fishing uh instilled into my blood, basically, from the Fraser River, the Vetter River, going to lakes and fishing in summertime when my parents had a little bit of holiday time which wasn't a lot and 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 i think probably one of the biggest factors for me is was knowing where our food came from when we were younger um you know i think people sometimes believe that we had everybody had money and and that's the way it was the world wasn't like that back then and i'm only 58 but um you know fish for us was food for our family and uh when we would go to the river we would sport fish and catch these fish but we would bring them back and and that was our monday meal every you know all the time that's we would have salmon and uh you know we would have farm animals or we would have chickens from the farm or we would have beef that was from the farm and sunday was a roast day uh and i actually probably didn't like salmon for a little while because we would have salmon on monday and on Tuesday, I would have a salmon sandwich in my lunch to go to school in. And then Tuesday night, I would have salmon casserole and I didn't become very fond of that later on. And, and then I would have another salmon sandwich the next day at school. And probably Wednesday, we would have uh, salmon patties, which I still like today. So, you know, to say that the, the fish and the food and the river is in my blood, I would have to say... It, I am a person of the river, and um, although when most people look at me, they see me as uh, maybe different, you know, than our Indigenous people that are local here, our, our Stolo people, um, but uh, I'm on the river, and I've been on the river for 52 years now. Um, it's ingrained in me. It is... Uh, the river runs through my blood, like the river runs through the mountains. I feel the river runs through my blood too. And, and all those things around the river too, the history, the culture, the pioneering. And, uh, to know that, um, uh, I can make a difference, uh, for the, 
present and future generations. Uh, and, and knowing the people that I have met on my journey, um, being able to meet so many wonderful people, maybe some challenging people over the years that we've had not such good relationships with, but we've formed amazing relationships over a period of time. Um, and the acceptance of being on the river and, and, and maybe because I choose not to fish with a net, but I choose to fish with a rod and a reel as an indigenous person. Um, and promote my way of seeing things is through a tourism lens and a lens of my own lens of how I grew up, sharing the things that I shared. And it's not that I haven't been out in a boat and been able to drift fish because I have done that with other First Nations leaders in our territory here. <clears throat> it, it was more about a way that I had the ability to make that work in my world, things that I could share with the world, develop something that was never developed here. There was only, when I started in 1988, there was only a couple of fishing guides here. There was myself and Fred Elmer and Danny Hart. There was only a few of us. Nobody guided on these rivers. You know, I, I told that story when I was out on the river yesterday, and I, I said, in my first two years of guiding, you could not sell a sturgeon fishing trip. It was impossible. You couldn't not sell one. You couldn't even give one away. Because when people came here, that's all they thought the Fraser River as is salmon fishing or the Vetter River. It was salmon fishing. So people would get, you know, maybe their one Chinook a day or two Chinooks a day. And maybe in those days we didn't fish sockeye. So maybe a coho or something like that is a bonus fish. And at the end of an eight-hour tour, which didn't cost very much in those days, and we had little tiny little boats, it was like... Okay, well, maybe at the end of the day, you'd like to try sturgeon fishing. We have a really cool fishery here. It's called sturgeon fishing. And probably through my day of being with them, spending my eight hours or 10 hours with the people, I probably talked about it a few times. Maybe you'd like to try it at the end of your day. And, uh, no, no, we're good. And, well, well, maybe maybe just an hour. I mean, I'm not going to charge you. I'm going to do this for free. And and they're like, no, no, we, we got our salmon. And we're really happy. So the evolution of things, you know, watching, you know, us move from our salmon stronghold here in the Fraser River and corridor, you know, all the other tributaries, moving towards a shift of uh, loss of, you know, um, uh, run sizes uh, and the many things attributed to that um, has made a shift. And we had to shift into a, into and adapt our business to take on sturgeon fishing. So how are we going to market that to the world? Because really that was a fish that was known as, uh, you know, a first nations fish that was harvested. You know, they did a lot of ceremonial stuff and fed their families. It was a commercial fishery for many years where they harvested fish, um, down and they took them and they sold them down, down in Vancouver. And there was a commercial fishery at the turn of the century where they, they nearly devastated the population of the Fraser River sturgeon in the lower river from Mission Down. It was terrible. Um, so we had to evolve in the salmon crisis. And we had to adapt and, and figure out what were we going to do. And we began to market sturgeon fishing. And, and we still do salmon fishing trips. And we still do, you know, fly fishing trips and rafting trips for steelhead. It's just that the main focus has now turned over to sturgeon because there's really not a lot to fish for now in our river. And it saddens me. And, and I know that through the effort of a whole bunch of people that have inspired me over my journey, I feel that my calling is to ensure that I work hard 
in many different aspects of the river and what's around the river to try to create and have the ability to uh, provide, at least if nothing else, a glimpse to the next generation so they can see what we did and, and, and how we grew up and how much that the food from the river and, and having the experience to be around other people. The river was a pe- place to gather and it never mattered whether you were indigenous or you were non-indigenous. There was never a separation or a segregation when I was young. We all just went to the river and, you know, my buddies would be fishing out there and this guy was fishing with a net and this guy was fishing with a rod and a reel, but nobody cared. You know, we had a good resource. We had, you know, one of the most incredible and we still have the most incredible river, in my view, in Canadian history. Like there's there's no other river, in my view, in North America that represents the meaning and the feeling of the Fraser River tributaries in the corridor. And it doesn't matter whether you're down in Vancouver or you're up in Lillooet or Boston Bar or in Lytton or Yale, uh, that river is deep. And it's deep, not in depth. It's deep in, in history and culture and tradition. And uh, like I said, the, the people that I've been around and I've learned from, you know, which I call my elders, and I, and I learned from young people too, but I, I've learned a lot. I've hung out with a lot of older people than myself. And that has allowed me to see things um, maybe through a different type of a lens, whether it be conservation, whether it be an urgency lens, or whether it be um, knowing that I have the ability to help to make change, positive change. And um, without making that effort um, and feeling that inside what I feel when I'm, when I'm doing good work, whether I'm cleaning a river up or whether I make a call that something's not right on the river and, and we need to report some riparian destruction. Um, I feel that if I don't do this work, I'm carrying a big load of rocks in my backpack that I, I'm going to have trouble carrying around for the rest of my life. Uh, and sharing that knowledge uh, and inspiration like other people showed me allows me to maybe pass that on through the next generations and be hopeful that the stories aren't lost, that the livelihood, the social welfare of being to the river, the mental health that you go to the river and, and receive is, um, it's almost undescribable to tell you the truth, mm-hmm. that feeling of passion and caring and loving and, and, and what you watch the eagles and, you know, you see trees moving down the river that, you know, will land on a bank and it will become a great riparian area where, where little tiny little fry may seek refuge. People don't really see that. They just see a mess, you know, of stuff coming down the river, but there's meaning to all that. You know, the sand that's deposited has organic matter in it that comes from the fish that pass away in the in the river and they, they die. Um, you know, the leaves that go in and they, they, they make little areas where uh, they get caught up in the grass and the little tiny little Chinook fry or the baby little sturgeon or, you know, or the little sockeye fry gets to seek refuge in to get away from a bird or, you know, some other predator that a little fish that may eat them up on the river. And, and knowing that we have the ability to look at that and adjust, you know, to what we need in the next generations to save our, our, our wild salmon population and our sturgeon population, because sometimes people forget about that because they're all related, you know, without salmon, we're probably eventually going to have no sturgeon. And, um, 
And, and, and so for me, the tourism lens was the one that I wanted to take. And I seen great value in that. Um, and, and I would have to say that probably 90, 98% of my people don't harvest any fish. We harvest fish when there's surplus fish. You know, if there's a run in, in the river that allows for, uh, food social cereal, FSC fishery, which is a food social ceremonial fishery protected under section 35 of the constitution. It's the, the right for sustenance and to bring fish to your family for the First Nations um, people that live up and down the river at one given time of the year, which is really a small portion of opportunity to fish now because of the way the stocks are. Um, to be able to have that and also when there's surplus fish to have an opportunity for other people, other fishers, sport fishers, if you want to call them um, recreational anglers, to have an opportunity to get to the to the river alone is healing for those people. And probably many of those people never catch a fish when they're out there. And, and it's probably it's probably a very big misunderstanding. You know, many sport fishers think that First Nations take all the fish on the river. And that's so not true. And it's a story that needs to be told. And it it it's misconception within two groups, user groups. <clears throat> and actually three user groups because the commercial sector is also involved. Uh, the commercial fishery in river area, e gillnet fishery, uh, when there's surplus fish. All those fisheries are, are misunderstood. And we're now really doing some good work with something called the Fraser, Lower Fraser River Collaborative Table. And I just sat at a meeting there the other day for about six or seven hours. And there was representatives from all sectors. And we talked about just what we're talking about today is learning, learning from each other about the misconceptions and understanding what the fisheries mean to each group in each sector. <clears throat> so just because you've been fishing on the river all your life with a net doesn't mean you shouldn't give an opportunity to understand what that looks like through a sport fishing lens. And as a sport fisherman, you need to understand what an FNC fishery is or a surplus fishery and understand what that meaning is to the First Nations culture up and down our rivers. Uh, you know, I, I talked to a lady uh, the other day and I've told this story a lot and I feel there's a lot of value to this little tiny little snippet. And, and it's about the fact that when I'm preparing a rod to go out on an experience and I call it an experience, I take people, I don't take people fishing. I take them on a journey. I take them on an experience on the river. It's, and I instill this in my guide team. It's important to talk about all the things about the river, not just that we're going there to catch fish. That's only a really little portion of it. It's actually, it's about the experience and showing people where we live and being proud of, <clears throat> proud of our area in British Columbia and Canada in, 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 in the broader spectrum, but more so our area, you know, um, which is a big area too of the Fraser River. And I told a story about, you know, when I'm getting my rod ready, I'm tying a hook and I'm, you know, making those really nice little knots and I'm doing all that work to get things right. Everything needs to be perfect on that, on that rod. And I want it nice and clean and ready to go. So I'm very well prepared. And I translate that into a net. And, you know, I've been able to hang out with many elders in my day and send First Nation elders up and down the river. And I've watched them hang nets and I, something I want to learn to do just so I feel what it feels like from their point of view, how they felt when they're weaving a net or they're hanging a, a weed line on a net and making that net perfect. So 
working on that net, mending those nets, in my view, is like tying a fly to catch that one fish or, or getting your gear ready and tying the knots and putting everything, all the pieces together of your fishing rod. And then I say when, 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 I, uh, when, when we're out in the river and we're setting the net on the river and the net is coming off of the, coming off of the boat and it's reeling out, you know, that, that's like a person casting a rod, my first cast of a rod in the day, and I'm either float fishing or I'm fly fishing or I cast out into the sturgeon pool and, and, and they're, and they're putting a net out and it's fluent and it's, uh, it's how it's, it's it, 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 you could, they can feel it in their heart. They're excited. Oh, I have an opportunity. And, and, and then in a boat, you would see, you know, you get a bite and that's called, you know, the rod tip moves down and then you're excited. The people in your boat are excited. And to me, I translate that to as, as the indigenous people are coming down the river and, the, and they're watching their net. They're watching it so intently and they're watching. All they're watching for is a little cork bob. That uh, that cork in the, on the net, on the, on the top of the net is pulling down and it pulls up and down a little bit. And that's like a rod biting for a, for an angler. You know, uh, they go, they detach their boat and they're going to do something called hot picking and they're going to go over because there's a lot of seals and predators in the river and they may take that one fish, that one fish that would feed their family, their elders, sharing with their communities on the river that that one fish would mean to them and they go over and they get it and they pick that fish up and that's like us setting a hook as a sport angler, setting a hook and then, you know, a fish explodes from the water and that feeling uh, you get to have a well-rounded feeling. And, and I feel that the similarities are there, but in a different way. And I think that if people could see that from that lens and understand that feeling, because we're all at the river, we're enjoying the river, it's good for our mental health. And it's important to us, whether we are just a Canadian citizen going fishing or a person coming from all parts of the world to see and come and see our beautiful land, or whether you're indigenous and you're fishing with a net on the river. And there's a need for it all. Can I just ask a question? You grew up along this river. You had experiences that are starting to become less and less common. Um, we hear more about mental health issues. There is a growing disconnect between people um, and the food that they eat. They don't know where it's from. And you're starting to see more people saying, I don't want to eat something if it's um, like done in a factory farm or something like that. You're starting to see tensions kind of growing. What was it like to grow up and have the river be like a second home to you, where for so many now, it seems like they're so disconnected? Like, what was, you have a unique experience, and I'm just interested if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because, like I said earlier, I, you know, I had an opportunity very close to my grandfather and spent all my time on the, on the Vetter River. And then, of course, my experiences on the Fraser River being introduced to that. And, and at a young age, my father let me, you know, take a, a little t tiny little boat on the Fraser River. And I mean, it must have been crazy letting me do that, but it's what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, sports took me really away from, from the river and fishing because, you know, I, I played some pretty high level sports and it was aggressive. And then, you know, my early twenties, I, I kind of, I went to Alberta for a couple of years to make some money and come home and <clears throat> come back home. I missed this place really bad. And I said, what can I do here? And it wasn't easy to do the journey of creating a sport fishing guide company, which really hadn't been done here. We were pioneers, you know, we were, we took something. So. <clears throat> Later on, you know, 
was so attracted to the river, I could not never stay off the river. And the Fraser River became my my absolute home. Like I, I really just lived, eat, and breathed that river nonstop. And knowing about, you know, I mean, I, I think we were so young then that we didn't even understand what we could be sitting on as far as, you know, historic tragedies of the river. Uh, you know, how we would ever see a demise of things like wild salmon. And and having that feeling of now, you know, fast forward and real, you know, I mean, I'm 58 now and I started this business in my early 20s. And the feeling now of what we have to lose, the disconnect, you know, to the, to the youth. For me, it's about watching, you know, the youth and, and putting the youth back to the water and, and, and letting the youth be a part of helping us for a better future. Uh, you know, modernization, uh, you know, electronics, technology changes things for the youth today, you know. And parents have a responsibility and elders have a responsibility of passing on traditions and knowledge. And, um, and if we're not careful the way I see things now to get the young people involved in the rivers, the land, um, even just being with people socially, we are going to be a weird culture, in my view, a different culture, evolve into something sad in, in the future. So if we can rewind, and I think COVID did a little of this, you know, you couldn't buy a canning jar almost anywhere. You could never find any, you know, wide mouth, the wide mouth jars, lids, you know, they were impossible. People always told me, hey, do you know anywhere you can get some lids? No. So you see a lot more people moving backwards. So we're, we're, we're rewinding a little bit. And, and that's where the importance of like things like wild salmon come in, you know, uh, you know, it's funny that you talk about the food. I was at an event the other day and there was some salmon. It was on a little, sort of a little bagely guy cut out. And I was like, oh, do we know if that's wild salmon? And nobody really had an answer. I mean, I seen some people putting it on their plates. <sighs> But I, there was a lady there that I knew really well, and she took my piece and put it on her plate. Because of the unknown, I didn't want to eat that because I've only ever ate wild fish in my life, whether it be a trout or an ooligan from the river at this time of the year, or it'd be a wild salmon or back in the day when I was allowed to have a little piece of somebody had harvested a sturgeon when it was allowed to harvest back in the day and somebody would give me a little piece and I would cook it up and, you know, so I could feel the river. So... I think that COVID, although there's so much bad and sadness from COVID, it was a terrible loss for my business in tourism for, you know, over two years. And I think I'm going to see a residual loss for probably maybe another five years more. It probably could be a five to 10 year, you know, residual loss. It gave us the ability to rewind and have the ability to maybe possibly learn to reconnect. And reconnection would mean maybe the young are seeing it a little more and it's a little bit more firsthand in their families as they're growing up. My parents are canning. My parents are planting a garden. Uh, my, my parents are being more responsible with the food that they give me now. And although the world is really fast-paced, I think it's something that we really need to consider and move back towards 
is uh, that would give the importance of riparian areas. That would give the importance to protect protection of our river corridors. Uh, and the youth will be the ones that move this forward. They're the ones that have the ability through the teachings and uh, the lessons given by elders, whether it's parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, if they're lucky enough to have them in their lives, to talk about the old and move forward to the present and say, we have the absolute ability to change what the world will look like in 20 to 40 years and to protect what needs to be protected and take make priority um, gathering and being with people again and not being so separated or segregated. And uh, I think that would change a lot of things myself. I agree. I think of like um, when I was growing up and it kind of reminds me of your your salmon story of eating salmon so many days. Um, my mother was part of the 60 scoop. So she, and she's uh, got a disability, which means that she struggles with recipes. She's not she, uh, we she would buy all this amazing food, um, but she'd struggle to like utilize the celery or the carrots. And so we'd end up eating the same sort of meals each day. And I look at that now and I'm grateful for it. But during that time, I was so frustrated by it. And I feel like there's a certain amount of struggle you want when you're growing up, a certain amount of uh, challenge, a certain amount of adversity that kind of helps you form that you look back on with like a certain level of gratefulness. And it seems like that's the same for you. During that time, it was like, can I get something else than salmon? But now you look back and you go like, well, this was what my family was doing to support me. And this is this is how we lived. And this is how we survived. And it feels like while we do still have struggle, it doesn't seem like it's got that same maybe positive element to it where it's like um, my grandmother who survived the Great Depression really appreciated food and she understood if it's the expiration date, she's going a few days past. She had that gratefulness for it and there were certain foods that she started to make and became standard because she knew how to conserve her food. It seems like that's something we're maybe missing right now. It feels like we don't have that same passing on of recipes and that same uh, connection with people that maybe we once had. And to your point, I think that maybe COVID is reminding us of like, what were my parents' recipes? How did um, I interviewed uh, Tim Srigley, who's really into leather making, because he's like, we don't make things that last like 100 years anymore. Everything is like getting the newest phone, the newest TV, everything needs to be updated. And so, but there are certain things you want to treasure that are historic, that have a, a certain amount of heritage to them. And it seems like maybe we're starting to wake up on that. Like, is that what you're feeling from the youth that you've maybe worked with? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and yeah, I mean, I I see it. I've seen it with my own children. Um, you know, I've tried to instill good good food values for them and, and understanding. I, I mean, I was lucky enough to have a meal with my son the other night. My son is a is a guide on the river and he's a Red Seal electrician. I'm really proud of him. He sees, you know, I never expected my son to ever be guiding him. I was guiding with him yesterday, actually, and he caught more fish than me yesterday. You know, I, I might have caught bigger fish than him, but he caught more fish. But I know he's telling good stories out there. And I, I was able to share a meal with him. And and uh, I took the time when, when the kids grew up and, and um, and I, I, you know, I had a couple of divorces before I was 30, so my life was pretty challenged. But I really spent a lot of time trying to create and develop good relationships with my kids um, and, and work hard to be, be there for them as much as I, as I could, you know, with the life I was leading at the time, um, growing a business and working and trying to make ends meet and support them and be there for them. 
But, you know, I, I shared a meal with my son, and my son's a great cook. My daughters are actually all great cooks. And we, we didn't ever really ever eat processed food in, in, in their lives. So th that was instilled in, the, in them as a value, and we still do that today. And it's positive to me to see that nobody's putting. I don't. I, my son wouldn't even own a microwave. I don't. I don't have a microwave in my canyon house. Like I, I, we don't do that. We cook. We cook our food uh, every day, and we try to get good wholesome food. And I mean, it's not that um, everything is perfect, but we try to live from the land. You know, my my first traditional meal. You know, if I was lucky enough to get a few hooligans, I would have my. My meal that I would have would be six little hooligans, uh, breaded and uh, a whole in their entirety. I don't clean them or anything. I just cook them up like they do traditionally within the communities along the river, and and stinging nettles that I harvest off my property right up in the canyon, and I take the tops off the off the uh, off the stinging nettles and soak them, and then I put them into the frying pan with garlic and onion, and the nutrient value is probably about twenty times over the load of something like spinach and then wow. you know i would pick a few morel mushrooms so river hooligans stinging nettles morel mushrooms and no i don't eat that every day but to be able to share that and and my family see that i do that uh it gives them the ability to think about the good food where our food comes from and and again you know that whole COVID thing i feel is going to re reload the opportunity and it's an only an opportunity doesn't mean it's going to happen but we have the opportunity to change the outcome of the future. So if we want to real, we want to go backwards, and we want to say we should try to do some more stuff from the land. Uh, we should plant more gardens. We should gather at the river, gather together, learn, teach, pass down these recipes, and cook together as families. Like spend the time to give good meaning and value to the next generations. Because, you know, to me, when I grew up, going out for a meal out, it was like an absolute rarity. Like you had to pass school for the year and you got to go out somewhere. Like a really big deal would be to go get a whistle dog down at Dog and Suds. Like that's a really big deal in a root beer. You know, th there was none of that because really, on the most part, people struggled in the 80s and the 70s. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of money around. You know, you lived. That's how you lived. And uh, we've we've moved so far away from that now that it's 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 hard for me to even watch sometimes what actually goes on, and um, I think understanding where your food comes from, looking towards a future of being responsible and accountable, uh, making our governments accountable and responsible for how they how they. Uh, how they look after our wild salmon and, and fish and, and, and all of our animals managing in British Columbia, our forest, our trees, our rivers, uh, our resources. Um, I think that would be a great job for the elders to teach the youth as well, because I, I, I think we're doing a, I think we're trying to fix uh, some of the real big issues with and around our, our water columns, uh, but I think we're missing it. Like we're really missing what we need to be doing in the future, and um, so we're we're at an, we're at sort of a teetering point, I would say, in 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 my career and in my life, say that we're on the verge of losing our identity as both river people, Canadian citizens, 
and what the world actually identifies us as, honestly, as kind of conservationists in our own land. That is that is frightening to hear. We also hear about like um, a sense of despair, like we hear about depression rates being high, anxiety rates, but then you start to look at like people don't have any connections anymore. Um, it doesn't seem like my generation is overly interested in um, the idea that their elders or senior citizens have knowledge to share. There's this sort of pervasive mentality that like, well, since my grandma doesn't know how to use like an iPhone, she doesn't know anything. Like she doesn't have any information to share with me. And I think that that's of course a mistake. And like people like Eddie Gardner and Brian Minter really show the wisdom that can exist. But we often sort of put wisdom to the side for intelligence. And we look to perhaps the Elon Musks or the Jeff Bezos and go, well, they, they're intelligent. They know how to build things. And so they must know everything. And then you look at like their relationships and they don't have great relationships with their spouses. And so there's there's knowledge to be gained from uh, learning where your food comes from and, and having that connection. And when you have like a prepackaged meal that you can pick up from Save on Foods for $5, sure, there's a convenience element, but there's a lack of connection. And then your whole life starts to become texting people rather than seeing them in person and having food that you don't know where it's from or who made it. And you can maybe like live off the fumes for a while, but there's something about looking perhaps at the stars when you're when you've just finished a day of fishing, the fresh air on your face, that you're experience you're having an experience, as you said, that's different than what other people are becoming more and more used to. Um, we're in apartments, we're rushing to work, then home. Everybody sounds busy, but nobody seems that busy. Like everybody's on their phones scrolling away and saying, I have no time to get anything done. And it's like, well, it seems like you're on your phone a lot, like you're not doing stuff. And so I'm just interested, what is it like to bring people to the water and, and like have them kind of shut those things off? Like you're not having meetings on the boat, you're back in nature. Do you see kind of a shift from being on land to like the high paced people to like, this is, this is magnificent. This is slowing down and, and experiencing something instead of planning for the future. Yeah. I, I mean, I see that, i see that virtually every day when I'm on the water and, you know, I actually start my day out and talk about where I am and, you know, where I am in relevance to which, you know, which band or which First Nations band we're, we're going to fish through their territories. And we talk about all that. And, and the other thing I talk about when we get on the boat is, is about, you know, um, uh, having the ability to have me take the images that are needed to be taken for the day. And, and it stops people from wanting to go onto their phones. And I found it as a little key way of, of not saying you can't be on your phones. It's that let me create your journey through my lens and I'll give you all the photos at the end of the day, whether we airdrop them through technology or we load them up to Dropbox and my office will send them out to the clients. And, and it gives people an opportunity to just stop. You know, because they don't need to be on their phone. They're they're listening to the stories as we go up the river. They're understanding that, you know, we'll see, yesterday we seen two deer on the river. And then the one guy at the end of the day says, well, no, I think we seen four. And I said, well, oh, I, I don't remember four. And he goes, well, we seen two that were over here. And maybe it was the same two over there. So we seen four. But we know he was paying attention. 
You know, we had big trees coming down the river because of the fresh ad and some of the flooding, uh, you know, that had happened upriver in Spencer's Bridge to Merritt. And we were seeing the residual of that. And it's interesting to people, wow, look at that giant tree or look at this or, oh, there's something else floating down that's some sort of pollution object. You know, it's a hot water tank or it's, you know, and we can't change any of that. We can take the garbage off the river. So slowing down the technological process in a boat, we're good at it. You know, we, it's a matter of what we do with the people in the boat. Maybe when they're done with the boat, they're back on their phones and they're scrolling and stuff. But for that eight hours or 10 hours or whatever we've captivated, six hours, four hours, we've given them an option to say, this is nature. Let's reconnect. Let's create an experience for you that is not only fishing. It's about the history, the culture, the tradition, about how British Columbia was born uh, you know what? Ha what's happened after the last ice age? You know, ten thousand years ago, when those when the Columbia River Basin was carved out, and and how the Fraser River was carved out, and we see, you know, we see transformer rocks, or we see rocks that have fallen off glaciers all around us in that canyon area. It's like a you know, I fished in the Lower River for so many years, Chilliwack, Agassiz, all the way down to Vancouver, and although it's still beautiful down there in a different way, it's more industrialized. And, 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 you know, my latter part of my career has been spending so much time in the canyon, so much that I, you know, I, I couldn't help myself. I looked for nine years to find a piece of property so I could really connect with the water. And I was lucky enough to find these three acres on this road where there's no lights. You know, the, no, the only noise pollution would be the trains, you know, when you hear that. But, you know, you know, that's part of our history, too, is the way trains travel through that canyon period and areas. Um, you know, moving valuable, valuable things that needed to move, be moved across Canada. It was, that was the part of the evolution. But when you, when you sit for a minute and like you said, you get to smell that fresh air being moved by the water current, the water starting to rise now, the water currents are picking up. It's bringing down smell and scent. It's moving, you know, it's moving the wind through the trees in a different way. It's the sounds of just the river rumbling at the side of the banks. And um, and knowing that it's going to bring food to people or, or experiences to people throughout the year. Uh, wow. I, I just, yeah, I, you know, I, I really got to say, you know, I think about it every day about how fortunate I am and maybe it was through fluke or I don't know what it was that I have the ability to through my lens the way I the way I teach which doesn't mean it's the way that everybody needs to teach we all garner things from other people but my vision is a vision like I stated before it's it, it's kind of like it's the cultural tradition. It's talking about all the netting and all the things that we need to do moving forward to protect our fish, but also a tourism lens. And, and I think there's a hard balance there sometimes, but knowing that we can take people, shut down technology and bring them to the river, whether it's a tour, whether it's a fishing experience, whether it's at the Fraser Canyon Riverside Domes or whether it's at the Fraser Canyon TP Escape, you know, we can stop people from being so busy in the world to realize the importance to get back to some of our ancestors' origins and realize what we're, what we're either missing or at least have the ability to balance your life in a better, better way for the future to say, 
you know, recipes and all this and, and, and grandma's words and great grandma's words are, are maybe not exactly what I see today on my technological pads and all the things that I do with my iPads, and my phones. But maybe grandma can navigate with you through the phone and talk about making a recipe that you may put in your iPad and in your notes and cook that recipe with you. And you will take that with you on a journey for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think that recipes are an incredible thing because if you have a recipe that's been passed on from generation to generation, you could be cooking something of your great grandparent who's no longer alive and bringing something like their legacy back to life in some way. We often think of history in books, in statues, in museums, but I really like how you described uh, the Fraser River as a piece of history, and we kind of get caught up in, well, it's a flowing body of water. That's what it is. And so we, we don't give it maybe the same credence that we give a really old statue or like the Mona Lisa. You go there and you go, wow, this is, this is a piece of history. But that river has stories. It has experiences. People have died on that river. People People have caught an incredible fish. People have um, reconnected with family members. They've fished in the like indigenous people have fished in the same spot and passed on fishing spots for generations. And so there's pieces of history all along that river and stories that have been shared and passed on from generation. To, can you tell us about you? Know, how how do you see the river? Because I've heard it described as like uh, the lifeblood of indigenous people in the area. I've heard it described as like um, a highway that connects us all life like it has a, a personality perhaps and i'm just interested in, in how do you see it yeah and, and i and i see it exactly that way but maybe one step further what i see is you know the river isn't uh you know i see it as the indigenous river the people of the river the stolo people i mean there's people all the way up the river not everyone is stolo but you know through the 30 nations and uh, the 24 bands of stolo that uh, that i know of um that are on the area um you know in this exact area where we're we're kind of yelled down to the salish sea um i see there's the huge connection for them to the river but on a more overlaying and uh, layered approach, it's that everybody sees that. So you don't have to be indigenous to get the value out of what the river is. We as Canadians, as settlers here, are many generations, you know. So somebody's great-grandfather could have immigrated from Europe and they settled in Montreal or they settled in, lots of them settled into the into the prairies. And then there was always this this statement that always came through. I remember we talked about this with my grandfather, and they ended up in Saskatchewan when they came over. Um, and this is my father's side of the family, and and then they became farmers. And it was go west, young man, go west, young man. I mean, our family has a family name farm still in Regina, believe it or not. And you would have not thought that would gone by the wayside, but it hasn't. Um, and that would be my grandfather's side. So. Whether you are Indigenous or non-Indigenous, that river brings us together because it is the cornerstone of where people have grown up through generations. Many people, many people have grown up there. Uh, my children grew up on the river. They spent time on the river. They spent time on the river. I've had my great, or my, pardon me, my granddaughter and my grandson at my property in the canyon, and they love down by the rocks and the beach and playing in the sand. And 
it makes no difference whether you are indigenous, non-indigenous, that river connects every single person and it, it actually has the ability to bring people together, to gather. It has the ability to teach. Uh, I, I think one of the a happy little moment for me in my life is I remember my daughter saying, hey, hey dad, can you go and pick up Kaya um, down in Yarrow, where I grew up a lot in Yarrow. I spent a lot of time in Yarrow. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll pick her up today. And I know what she's doing. She's in she's in outdoor school. It, it's a, uh, I think it was called Leapfrog. And, um, and I went to the river that day and I drove in and, Oh, Guampa, Guampa. And she comes running up and, and it's pouring rain. Like like her hair is soaked and wet. And um, then I got to talk to the teacher. It was a really small little uh, group of students that were lucky enough to be enrolled in this program. And it's learning from around the river. So, you know, maybe there's 15 of them or 16, whatever the class is. And their whole, and they're, they're part of their school, like, well, well, there was before school, but kind of their growing years. And she was only like four. And they would be down at the river playing in the dirt and, and you know, learning hands-on things, talking about the fish and the plants and doing all that. And, it, and the lady said to me, Dean, your granddaughter is so much different than all these boys. The boys are crying and they're wet and they're not happy and they're, you know, they're doing their stuff. But wow, your your granddaughter doesn't matter to her whether it's freezing cold on her hands or whether it's pouring rain on her on her head. She wants to be emerged in this whole thing about this ecosystem, this delicate, cool ecosystem we live in. And there was a takeaway for me from that. You know, I remember snapping a picture that day, a selfie of her and me. And I have that, you know, on, on my phone and I look at that from time to time. And I remember sending that image over to my daughter and my daughter goes twinning. And, and when you look and I, and I look at those two pictures of her face and my face and I see, wow, there's some of me in her. Like there's some similarities between us. And knowing that she was on the river learning and educating at such a young age that really I had nothing to do with. But I was on that same river in that same area when I was a little boy is the connection that I take away from that and knowing the value, the true value in what was passed on directly or indirectly. But my daughter has has also the vision that it's important that that the children are connected to the land and what's what evolved from and around the river. So I, I think that's probably the best way I can describe you know, again, it, it's a story, you know, it's a, it's a story of, I mean, you can sense there's proudness there, there's proud, proud feeling to know that, that they're emerged in that, they, that they, they understand that it's important how we have fish, how we look after our fish. You know, one of the stories that sticks out in my head too is, is, you know, we talk about the food and growing up, my grandmother was, was sick and she, my other grandmother from my other side of my family that's all my indigenous my indigenous side of my family you know my grandmother was in Yarrow and and my grandmother got ill my grandma was 97 and my aunt said you know grandma's got a grandma's going into the hospital tonight you know she's just not good and it was only a few years ago and my grandma's 97 and my aunt came and spent some time at my house and she flew out from Ontario one of many children from my from that family and it was a broken family and 
uh, I cooked some salmon that night. I took some salmon out, and I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to take my grandma some salmon. My grandma loves salmon, and I cooked, I cooked a little tiny tail section that I had in, in the freezer of, uh, of, I think it was a, a Chinook salmon, and it was a small one, just a little bit mellow, a little bit more mellow of a flavor than it, was, than it is for a sockeye, which is a little more bold. And I got to visit with, went to the hospital that night, and I got to visit with my grandma, we didn't know how she was going to do, and my aunt was staying with her all night. And I brought, I brought the salmon in. I said, Grandma, I brought some salmon in for her. Oh, you know, so nice of you. And one thing and next. And, and my aunt said, you know, don't be offended if Grandma doesn't eat that. And um, although she would be really, you know, happy to know that you brought her a piece of this salmon. <clears throat> in the morning, my aunt phoned me and she said, you know, sometime through the night when I fell asleep, I fell asleep. And then I looked on the side there where the salmon was sitting and all that salmon was gone. And my grandmother said to her that, you know, it was one of the happiest meals that she had had thinking about where that fish had come from and knowing that, you know, those, because some of my uncles and people had fished, you know, as I was growing up and took me to the river at times and her getting that peace before her final resting time, um, gave her an opportunity to have that last taste of that salmon and i know that's the last time she ever got to taste some wild salmon and that's meaningful to me that's so beautiful and i'm just interested to understand like we have this idea of legacies but we don't really talk about them as much i, I don't hear people like you used to have like third generation welders or blacksmiths or that used to be a thing and it seems like it's less so often children go and do whatever they want but in both of those moments there was a moment where you knew that you were making sure that you gave your grandma her last opportunity to experience that and and have that connection um and with your granddaughter you were able to see that she had taken up the legacy that the the experiences were able to continue and it seems like we're hitting this point now where we're like wow my children might not get to experience the outdoors like i experienced when i was growing up like um a lot of the adults that i've had the opportunity to talk to talk of like they we went into the forest and we just had no idea what was going to happen next yeah. and that seems to be sort of fading away where it's like well we have a playground and it's it's licensed for this and you get you're guaranteed not to get injured if you jump off like everything is so safe now that there's this kind of fear that maybe we've gone too far and that we won't have these opportunities to really pass on a legacy or pass on our experiences and make sure that they have the wholesome experiences that we got and maybe protect them from some of the negative um, experiences that we went through. And so they get the best of both worlds. And so it seems like that's what gives life meaning and sometimes we forget it sometimes we focus on the pay sometimes we focus on the career aspirations that i want to move up in this company whatever it looks like but we forget about the role of kind of developing a person and giving them a holistic understanding of of how the world is from understanding the fish to the wildlife and and how the ecosystem functions i'm wondering if you could help walk us through that what what can people learn from the river in terms of like um, the fish and and what do you take away from that because I've had the opportunity to sit down with uh, Chris Koo who's an expert in birding and he loves owls and, and raptors and understanding ducks and, and telling their story and I'm interested what do you see when you're on the river because you might see bears and deer and you just you see so much life 
intertwining with it with one another and i'm just interested what does that look like what are some fish that stand out to you um what is some life that that you've had the opportunity to learn about yeah and i you know wow that's a deep one there's a lot there's a lot to that content and um and and i think just to touch back on the last point was is that you asked me about the blood and what runs through the rivers the blood and i think what i was trying to provide for you was and i hope that came through is that there was the blood flowing through my veins was the same blood flowing through my grandmother's veins and hence probably my great-grandparents and their ancestors. And to watch that go through my own children and then to see it in my grandchildren and to know that that's just there. And it, it wasn't something that I had to force to develop. It was something that was naturally the blood that ran through their veins. There was something. It's like when I say I never believed my son would be a fishing guide, and I can honestly say today how proud I am of him, of what I watch when I see testimonials come back from clients and friends that have been out with him to say he absolutely, and even more so maybe, understands the gift of what what the river and what we have here in British Columbia can give to other people. And he sees that now. And, you know, it'll be just interesting to see down the road, you know, what career choices my grandson will make or my granddaughter will make. And, you know, get to see them at all really much. But what I'm saying is that that blood, that connection was there. Now to move forward into the sort of the fish stuff. Wow. There's just, you know, when we grew up, it was a matter of catching salmon and feeding families and, and still a sport of being able to catch and release, which is quite misunderstood. Uh, in my view, people don't understand catching and releasing. And, and probably the most fascinating fish would be the dinosaur of all, you know, like salmon is a really big component for me, but. But, you know, a number of years ago, I got sort of introduced. Oh, I, I, want, I want to catch a sturgeon. I want to see what that's like. And I, I just, wow, it, it, the, the fish just blew me away. Uh, not only, you know, people look at me and say, oh, they're kind of ugly. No, they're beautiful. Like, they're really, truly beautiful creatures. Like, you know, and, and to know that, you know, I used to tote them as Jurassic and then realize that, man, I, I was wrong. They're not Jurassic. They're not 100 million year old fish. They're triassic era they're two to three hundred million years old that they had been on earth and you know i, I have some fossils that have been gifted to me uh, from some people i have a I've scoot off the back of a sturgeon that was dated by a paleontologist as 70 million years old and i have it and it's like wow that that has like that's like unchanged the the scoot on the top the platelet is exactly the same as what a fish looks like today. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. So, I mean, I think all fish, because they just bear life to the river and what's around the river, they feed the trees, they feed the bears, they, they feed the eagles. I mean, they feed the microorganisms that keep that river alive and beating. Uh, but I think, you know, that fish, that sturgeon with its uh, resilience, and kind of like us as people, we need to be resilient, you know. Uh, these fish need to adapt and they need to be resilient. They're perfectly designed. They're aerodynamic. They have sensory uh, parts on their bodies, ampullae larenzini, that, you know, people see, think they see the bait. They don't see the bait. They can't see the bait. Their eyes are little, tiny, little golden eyes to us, a, a, a larger body mass than, than what it is. So, you know, how do they find food? Well, electromagnetic uh, field that's given off by a little tiny piece of bait and we're fishing in a giant river and you throw it a little tiny little bait and, and these 
these fish forage and they find it in amongst this, you know, rocky corridor and stuff. And it, like even that just amazes me how you can do that. And then and then moving forward, I you know we we had a die off of a whole sturgeon in the river in 1994, and I became really really great friends with with the 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 biologist who. Uh, who looked after those fish, who was there doing the necropsies and, and looking after cutting them open and the hands on what happened to these fish. And there were a lot, they were big, 34 fish between eight and 12 feet or something. You know, it was a real sad time in the eight and 12 feet. Yes. Eight so like bigger than a person, way bigger oh, than way a person. Bigger than a per- fish that were, you know, upwards of a, some of the bigger fish would have been upwards of a thousand pounds that he sampled, you know, Dr. Marvin Rosano, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time with him. Uh, gotta say he's one of my truly best friends and um, you know he comes at everything from me in a really big unbelievable science based area and I, I come to him as Dean the fishing guy who has on water experiences and, and, and you know he learned so much that guy and I've, I've learned so much from him from a technical scientific part of uh, of these fish and, and of all fish on the river, but that fish in particular, and him and I do sampling days. We take out, um, you know, I volunteer, I donate a bunch of days to the Fish and Wildlife Program. He was the sturgeon biologist for British Columbia from, I think, 1993 to 2001. And then he took a job and a position at BCIT as a fish wildlife rec um, program instructor. So he does the two-year program there. And then there's a graduate program that Dr. Ken Ashley does. Anyway, so what we see is we see the ability to educate through fish and fishing experiences. So I donate a bunch of days to BCIT every year. Uh, I took out the second year students uh, for winter limnology on Mill Lake, uh, as well as the graduate students. And then I had the opportunity. Winter limnology? Winter limnology is uh, they're doing uh, sampling within small bodies of water to see what's living within the water and to understand better. And these are our future fisheries managers or environmental managers or, and they're, you know, people, when I say students at BCIT, um, I I believe there's a two-year waiting program to get into that program. But so the, the, I call them kids, but they're not kids. Some of these students are 20 to 23 to 45 years in age. They're making career decisions that are going to affect our everyday life on and off the river and around the river or in some sort of an environmental role down the way. These are fisheries managers in the future being developed through guys like Dr. Marvin Rosenau and Dr. Ken Ashley. And yeah, so getting these these young students out to do a hands-on project, especially through COVID. We had to go through all these protocols, but we had masks on everybody and gloves on everybody, and we still took them to the river, and they got to sample little juvenile sturgeon. So we see these little babies that we're catching under 60 centimeters, and we're sampling these fish so that we can understand, you know, what the juvenile recruitment failure could be, you know, because there's so many theories out there right now oh well gravel mining did this damage on the fraser river urbanization did this pushing the dikes in did this created uh juvenile recruitment failure and then there's all kinds of other scientific things that we see and in field things which is like you catch a sturgeon and you could do a a a stomach sample of that fish and realize that 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 big sturgeon is a cannibal and he's eating the small sturgeon and maybe like a giant tree sends out, you know, millions of little seeds, 
but then that giant tree overshadows those seeds so they can't grow is nature's way of the big, strong tree surviving and all the babies not. It's, it's There's, you know, there's this weird balance in, in nature that just because it's a tree doesn't mean the same thing couldn't happen with a sturgeon. So maybe... Maybe stir- a lot of sturgeon are being missing, a lot of small little sturgeon, because maybe our salmon crisis has put us into a, a realm of maybe there's maybe the fish are a little hungry and, and maybe they need to supplement because we don't have as many salmon and they're not um, be given as many nutrients as maybe they need. So now maybe they're looking at eating their own. And, and, and maybe it's not gravel or maybe it's not many different reasons about these fish. And I, and I think probably the captivating thing for me is, is since 1995, when this fishery became catch and release only, seral, potentially seral listing as a species of special concern, it was about what do we know about this fish? Because we really knew nothing. And even today, after we've started to study and we've got 75,000 fish tagged and probably scanned over 200,000 fish, we still, you know, if you put a table there, a big table, a four by eight table out, and you put two grains of salt on that table for a fish that has lived over, been around on the earth for two to 300 million years, lives likely to be around 200 years of age, not proven, but we do know that mm. we've caught fish that are 125 to 150 years old, as old as Canada is today, is mind-blowing. And that those two grains of salt on a four by eight table represent what we really know in a fish that it lives such a long life. That is so crazy because we get into this mindset, like from somebody who's not a fisherman, not a birder, not a bee expert. I sit down with people like yourself and I expect most of the answers. And so, but each time it's like, we only know so little, but we can do so much in a day like we go grocery shopping and everything's priced out the way we expect it to the the lights work the internet works everything works so that we get kind of like well then we know stuff we must know stuff because everything works and everything's reliable and we get heat and we have plumbing and we have all these great things that i think there's a certain arrogance that we start to develop and feel that we understand and that um if we can name it if we can say great sturgeon then then we know about it. And it's like, well, we know so little about it. And I think that that we need to be reminded of that. We need, um, like light pollution is a real problem because we can forget that we're like hurtling through space and that there's, where there's meteors and comets passing us that are just so close to hitting us. We kind of get comfortable thinking like, I've got this life thing figured out and everything's going well. And I got my bank account and I've got my savings account. And we, when a pandemic hits, we go, Oh, well, I thought we had this all figured out. I thought everything was going to go the way I thought. And so it's so like pausing and thinking like 200 million years, 300 million. This is an incomprehensible number to us. Yeah. Like we can't formulate an understanding because we're here for 80 to 100 years and, and trying to span that out over time. It's like what would have been going on 200 million years ago is infinitely like even thinking 100 years ago of like, people driving their their cars and like the first cars starting to develop around a hundred years ago. It's like we are so we expect so much from like our Hondas and our Jeeps and we expect the world of them. And like 
they only came about like a hundred years ago, the first car. And now we're really trying to push for electric cars. And we're like, well, why aren't we there yet? And it's like, well, we just invented the car like a hundred years ago. Like this has all been a progression. We used to rely on horses and on dogs and like our mode of transportation was complete. And that's only a hundred years ago. So imagine that over 200 million years. And it's like, it's incomprehensible. And I like how you describe them as dinosaurs because that's really what like alligators and crocodiles are. And they freak us out. Like it is so interesting to watch those beasts move in the world because it's like, oh, you're just, you're out of your time. Like you're, you would just eat me and not think a thing of it. Where even bears seem to have like a hesitation, but a crocodile, they don't have any hesitation. And so it's really interesting to learn from your perspective, because it sounds like you still have such a passion for learning more about these things. Yeah. And I, and I think, and I think that's really well put, you know, I look at this as a, you know, to me, the sturgeon fishery is a very misunderstood one without the time and effort that we put in. Well, you wouldn't know anything about the sturgeon. You know, we would have the indigenous culture that would talk about the old stories. I mean, I was at a meeting the other day and we talked about that. Well, sturgeon to us were food to our family and, you know, we would smoke some sturgeon or, you know, one of the favorite things that they did is they put a piece of sturgeon on a stick and they would roast it on the fire by the river. You know, something I had never heard about. I just learned that the other day, but I could imagine that, uh, you know, to realize that we have the ability to protect this fish. More importantly, that if you drove to the river or the youth of the river or older people going to the river, because of the coloration of the Fraser River, and it's not clear and green and you can see down 30 feet, it the majority of the river during the year is turbid. You know, it's billions of sand particles being moved down the river in a 1,340-kilometer river from all kinds of feeder rivers and all pushing into the Frasers. When you look at the river, the river looks dirty. But if you put the water in a cup, it's not that dirty. But it's the refraction of the light to to the sand particles that are being moved down the water. So now in the last five years, I see the river as a dirty river almost 10 months out of the year, whether that's that's likely that's all from the all. And and I'm not depicting any industry. I'm just saying, you know, pine beetle and and logging near the river corridors has caused water to rush down into the rivers at a faster rate, which causes rivers and small feeding streams to uh, beef up and create dirtiness into the water. It's just sediment. So what happens is that you or anyone else, they're not going to just go to the river and see a sturgeon. They're not even going to know really about a sturgeon because they think of the river as salmon and fish and those type of fish. And that's why I think it's so interesting. When we get to share that, whether it's in a documentary uh, like The Heart of the Fraser, you know, and we talk about sturgeon and rearing habitat and, the, you know, the healthiness of the river and the ecosystem, or whether we get to take a student out or a, a, gra- a grandpa and a mom and a daughter, you know, out fishing three generations of people coming to fish, we then get the ability to take uh, talk about where we are and we get the ability to show them whether it's a little tiny sturgeon we get to show them the science what we're learning we get to talk about what we're learning from all the different sizes of the fish and we can help people to understand that without 
coming and using something like we do, like my business, Great River Fishing, is to be able to take people out and provide this experience. The likelihood of people doing this is not is not possible. Because yeah. it's not like you go to the river and you can just throw in a line and you're going to catch the sturgeon. The likelihood is that isn't going to happen. So we, through our ability, through our capacity and our lenses, we get to show people a whole nother aspect of why science and data becomes really imperative to learning. And it's not that we want to catch and release these fish. They're the most resilient fish, on, in my view, on the planet. Really? They're, you know, they've, in my view, they're left unharmed. Yes, we catch and release them. Yes, we do. But trust me, we love these fish. We kiss them. We, you know, kind of, we keep them watered. We we have even changed all of our principles in the way that we do things from when I rolled back and I first started sturgeon fishing. Things have changed. They've evolved. We've better handling practices. We're developing a film right now about better, really good handling practices so that we can share that with the world and anglers that are coming to our area that are doing it on their own. We can share that ability. And, and how do we learn? We learn because we took the time. I'm, a, I'm lucky enough to be a pioneer in the evolution of sturgeon fishing. And um, there's no, there's no way to learn without doing it. And people could say, well, you just leave all those fish alone. And, but how are we going to know about age and growth and science and stuff? So if we're, if the fish don't have any more food and they're going to die off, wouldn't we want to know about that? Wouldn't we want to know that we can change the outcome by, by giving them better habitat, by giving them the ability to remove fish farms from the, from the, uh, from the Pacific Ocean and say that we need to have more fish moving back into our corridors of the Fraser River. Well, well, we lose a lot of fish in Discovery Bay or in the archipelago. And we lose all these fish coming up because they're being attacked by sea lice. And we need to go back to those roots and say, we need these fish so our sturgeon can survive. What's sea lice? Sea lice is something that's dropped off or it attaches to, and, it, and it's it, it's very prevalent around around fish farms in the ocean. Wow. And, and, the, and, and there's ways that they try to defuse that with chemicals and this and that to get that off. But our, our, our little baby salmon, our smolts and our larger salmon, our larger salmon typically can fight off the sea lice. But as you are going through the migratory routes, as these fish go from the Fraser River all the way out to the ocean, they go off to mystery land and they go all over the place and they feed and they grow and they're either coming back every two years or four years or five years, these salmon. Sorry, can you walk us through that as well? That, <laughs> that blows, that wrinkles my brain. Well, yeah, it's, so when our salmon runs come to the Fraser River, they travel. Many of our salmon, some of the sockeye salmon will go as far as Stewart Lake. So they'll travel 900 mile journey from the ocean all the way through turbid water and, you know, different conditions and maybe some garbage on the water and uh, maybe some pollutants here and there caused by many different things that I probably don't want to get into all of it today. Um, but there's many, many, there's many challenges towards a fish coming home to their natal river. And they're, and, and they come to seven, a river 700 miles from now. They may come to, um, the Chilco system or they'll be going up to, uh, the Thompson River and migrating through the Fraser River. And, and then, then they lay their eggs. So, um, the male comes and the female comes and a, and a female salmon, wild salmon will build a, like a nest. It's called a red. 
and uh, then their eggs ripen on their journey as they go, the females, and, and, and they become loose. They come out of the skein, and they're now single little eggs, uh, little salmon eggs, and they, they build a bed, a little spawning bed. And then the males will come in and they fertilize that. And these reds are, are in all these rivers. So it's like when we see flooding, a natural disaster caused by many different things, atmospheric rains or, or we, we get a heat dome and the rivers get too hot. You know, all these things are really detrimental to the life cycle of our fish because if they don't spawn properly and and, and their habitat is not looked after in a... In a, in a uh, in a responsible way, like where they make their beds. Like, you know, it's like you, you're going to go to sleep on your messy bed, but it's all stacked up full of papers, or you're going to make a beautiful little bed and that's your nest where you get to sleep at night. Well, they need to have a home. These fish need to have a home if they were going to survive. Well, on their migratory route, then we now have our, our spawn fish. And in the springtime, all these little fry, like even now, when you see the, when you see in, you know, a month ago, you'll see the, the river is alive with these little fry and they're moving, they're moving through the wetlands, going on their way out to the Salish Sea. And then they will travel out into the ocean and be gone. But these little tiny little fry and some of the smolts that are like little trout size, they have to make it by these fish farms. And, you know, it's probably one of the strongest messages I could say. The, the Cohen Inquiry identified 75 different things that we could do to save salmon in the Fraser River. And one of the most important things was, uh, I think it's number 19, if I'm not mistaken, the 75 recommendations, and is to remove all salmon farms from the, from the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, all, all Atlantic salmon farms. And I'm not against jobs and having jobs. What I'm, what I'm more so saying is that if we give these fish a chance, a proper chance, we have to take some of the things out of the equation. You can't have a, a salmon, and never mind all the viruses, because the virus is a really big scientific thing, and it's so big that we can't even get involved in from the effluent coming from these fish farms. Is that if we don't do what has been recommended to us, and it has cost the taxpayers millions and millions and millions of dollars, and then both the federal and the provincial government are being irresponsible with a publicly owned resource. Okay, that publicly owned resource is also owned by First Nations as well as non-Indigenous people. As a Canadian citizen, period, you have a right to a publicly owned resource. And the government managers who manage this, federal and provincial, need to listen and understand that a recommendation has been made. The biggest recommendation that could give our fish the hope in the Fraser River, in my view at this time, uh, and others who are around me, scientists that are around me and I and talk to me and I listen to, also feel the same way. Providing an opportunity for our fries and our smolts to come home safely and get, have against a journey that's in these rivers already gives them a chance that we can be resilient and they can be resilient and they can change and have an opportunity to flourish again in our rivers. But without knocking off some of these big things that, in my view, are big things, that's the number one to me, first and foremost thing that we can change right now. And fish farms licenses are renewed here this year. I know my good friend Eddie Gardner would be right here beside me holding my holding my hand and we'd be hugging each other saying, yeah, wild salmon forever. Just like the hoodie I'm wearing today. Can you, can you actually tell us about that? Well, this is their design and their art, and, and I'm a big supporter, like you are, of the, of the uh, Wild Salmon Defenders Alliance. And, uh, you know, I, I met Eddie a number of years ago, and I took the time to understand about our fish. And 
and, 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 you know, the importance of the fish to all of us, indigenous and non-indigenous, uh, to the people of the world, wild fish. Um, and I, Eddie was so inspirational. You know, it's another, you know, I kind of just say in my journey of life, I've, I've been so fortunate to meet with people who inspire me and they create this journey that I feel that I'm on and they teach me and I listen to them and, um, I respect what they say because, first of all, they're my elder. Uh, they're older than me. They have more much wisdom and knowledge than I do, and they share that with me. And that's the nicest part. They share, and I get to listen and learn. And, you know, the Wild Salmon Defenders Alliance has had lots of challenges. Lots of people say, well, you know, we got to have jobs out there. There's got to be, you know, other fish, other ways of fish. Well, I stand beside them strongly and say, we need wild fish. We need the wild fish. It's important we have the wild fish. We don't want our culture, our tradition, and our heritage to go away. We don't want that to happen. And, you know, Eddie sends a, with many others, sends a voice out there, and he stands so tall and strong about the fish farms. And it seems that, and, and he's on that journey. He never stops on that journey. And... You know, we just had him at our AGM. He showed up to our Fraser Valley Salmon Society annual general meeting, and we gave the presentation of the heart of the Fraser. And, and, it, and it really doesn't matter. I mean, we called it the heart of the Fraser back then. And I know this has been brought up to me in the last week, actually, is that, you know, maybe the heart of the Fraser isn't the right name of it. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what the name of the documentary is that I helped to produce or I was a part of for a couple of years. More importantly is we brought attention to the region and the sector in the area between Mission and Hope, which was like we call is the lifeblood of the Fraser River. It's, it's where a lot of stuff really happens, the meat and potatoes of the ecosystem and the delicate balance that needs to be restored here and looked after. Eddie Gardner is all about that. Eddie Gardner is in support of that. And whatever that looks like in the future is, if we can connect some of these dots and add some of these you know missing pieces to these puzzles and, 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 and get government to understand if you give a chance to these fish to look after these fish and to look after where they belong and provide them good nesting areas and, and good good habitat and streams to go to and, and, and you know a, 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 good, a good river uh, and, and look at the forestation and how we how we adapt uh, you know don't maybe take so many trees off in certain areas and and create a balance. The big thing we can change right now is putting pressure on the federal and the provincial government to say no more fish farms that's where we start that's one. And we need to do that as people. Second and most is we can work on habitat. We can work with agriculture to say, you know, maybe we're putting too many fertilizers or we're clearing too close to the land and uh, to the waterways. Maybe we're clearing too close. Maybe we're ruining the shading from the creeks where some of our little baby fish nurture and live. So, you know, at Elk Creek, you know, they get a coho run right here in Chilliwack at Elk Creek. You know, how many people know about that? It goes through people's land, through their yards. But for many years, you know, when you add fertilizers to, to farmland, and farmland is important, but when you add fertilizers, whatever it is, uh, chemical fertilizers or natural fertilizers, whatever it is, it causes growth. And when you get growth, uh, you get choking out of little streams, choking. Grass grows really quick and fast, and it chokes out these little areas where our fish need to swim. So these little fish in Elk Creek, are attributed to part of a run size that comes up the Fraser River, the same as it is in Cultus Lake, where sockeye spawn in a lake, not even in a river system, which is very rare. 
or how the Coquihalla just blew out based on an atmospheric rain and we're seeing ever-changing weather patterns. But the growth of things like trees or if we're out in the Fraser River and we strip an entire island that's 200 acres and we take all the trees off of it, for instance, um, maybe we should continue to do that inland. Maybe that doesn't belong anymore. Maybe we need to find balance. And, and, and the world, the governments need to be open up to that. And the people that I get to talk to can spread the word too, that we have to do these things. And I, th I think you, you alluded to it earlier, you know, until the house is burning to the ground, we don't do anything anymore. And that's, and, and to me, I see that's the disconnect to the youth, right? It's, you know, I advocate for many different things, but we don't see a lot of young people coming to meetings. I try to educate young people, whether it's my son or, you know, one of my youngest guides, Landon Gill, started fishing with me when he was about six years of age. He's, he's one of the most successful guides on the Fraser River still today. He fishes more days than anybody, but he tells a story. He learned from me. And it, one thing he did when he was 16 years old is I made him come to conservation meetings. You had to come. If you want to be a part of this thing, and he wasn't even a guide yet, if you want to be a part of what we do together, you're going to give back. You're going to provide some sort of your learning and your knowledge, and you're going to hand that down, and you're going to pass that on to other people. You're going to spread a word of goodness to people. So guys like Eddie Gardner, you know, I just, I, I look up to Eddie and I say, wow, you've taught me so much, and I'm so happy to be supportive of you and the Wild Simon Defenders Alliance. And, you know, if he ever asked me for anything, I always try to provide whatever it is he needs. And, um, and, 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 and that, again, shows... Indigenous people working with industry people trying to protect, which would be the Salmon Society at that time, or anything that I do with Eddie could be, um, you know, the the whole Gill Road aspect, you know, uh, about protecting that area and how, how important that should be to First Nations that are that are here, Staza and to the Chukwaik tribes and uh, all the all the all the bands that are in and around that area and and how we need to put more pressure on the government to say. You know, we understand that many people recreate out there, but there's other places for recreation. Can you tell us about that? Can you tell us about the Gill Road incident? Because um, you were vocal during that, and I think that um, it's so easy to get wrapped up in your day-to-day, -day, but to take a stance the way you did um, to make it clear the impact that this is having, um, because I saw like them complaining, like, this is our fun time. And I think, to your point, like, this is madness. This is such an important area. Like for that to be sort of the defense seems like silliness. Um, and I'm just interested, how did that come about? Um, what was the original incident that, that kind of caught your attention um, and how was it kind of received? Yeah, well, I, you know, we've been doing garbage pickups in and around the Gill Road area, uh, Fraser Valley Illegal Dumping Alliance, which Eddie is a part of, and, and many people, Kevin, um, um, Kevin Raffle, um, I, I mean, I just, there's so many people, Steve Clegg from the city, a, a group of people who got together to create a, a, a cleanup. Kevin Raffle was the leading driving force of this. And, uh, and that started about, you know, we always knew that there's problems all in and around the river area. And it really started with garbage. And as we were picking up garbage, Gilroy was an accessible gravel bar, uh, that people could go to. So when the water's down and the side channel's not running, like now it'll be cut off and it's going to be hard for people to get through. Uh, there's a side channel cutting right through there. So people can't get through to that giant island wetlands area. And, 
And as we were cleaning up garbage, and I tell you, one of the most successful uh, historic garbage cleanups in Canadian history, I believe, at one time a couple of years ago, we had 785 people uh, cleaning up garbage. And it, and it really came off the back of Kevin Raffle. I really hats off to that guy. He's a younger guy uh, who who took his time to understand that it, he, he we needed to do better and we've taken, I think, the number was somewhere around 120 tons of garbage off about a 10-mile river corridor, you know, and the majority of that came off of Gill Road. So you have, you know, younger people or older people, they could stop around our community and pick up pallets and go out and burn pallets. We call them pallet fires. But I know a guy named Ross Aikenhead went down there and, 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 and he takes these really high, powerful magnets. And, you know, he works out on the weekend. And one weekend he took 900 pounds of nails off of the one portion. And this has been done multiple times. So pallet fires, pallets sometimes have toxins in the wood. There's nails and they're destructive. I mean, I just recently, the boys were down cleaning up Gill Road area and, and there was so much garbage there. It's 900 pounds? 900 pounds of nails, just nails. That's only one, that's one of two day session cleaning up nails. And this happens at Jesperson. It used to happen at Peg Lake. It happens all over. It's a message, you know, the people who work for me, I, you know. Uh, one of the young ladies that works for me, my EA, Alyssa, what a wonderful girl, so inspirational to me as a young girl who wants to clean up and take areas. And she understands the value of this. But when she was young, which wasn't too many years ago, but she's still young, she's 27. But when she was younger, she would be a part of the, the, the people going out to the Gill Road and having to pallet fire and hanging out and, you know, being with your friends. And, I, and I'm not saying how important the area is for people to go and visit, you know, and it's been generations and it and it's and it's hard because this is my community, it's hard for me, you know, when people are, you know, upset at me or, oh, well, we should stop sport fishing and how would Dean like that? You know, I'm not telling people they can't go and recreate. I'm saying that as responsible people of the river and around the river, is it not our duty to look after this? Like, people don't even understand what shingling is. There's an armoring built on a gravel bar. And if you look the way the river flows, and you look at the way all the rocks are placed on a gravel bar, it's really interesting. And it's not like I'm a scientist. I'm a, just a Dean Work guy hangs out on the river, and I learn from people around me. But I understand because I take the time to listen. There's an armoring. It's the way the river, the rocks are layered against each other. It's like putting shingles on a roof okay and if you went out to a gravel bar and you looked at one that's been undisturbed you'll see the shingling and it's the armoring protecting the layer of the of what's underneath there where eggs dropped and reds are built for spawning little nests and all that kind of stuff and and if it's dewatered or ruined or turned up it changes and alters fish habitat it ruins chum habitat in that area and for instance at Gill Road it ruins the most important one of the most important Chinook rearing areas is being ruined not only from garbage from toxins from just the de-armoring of the of the whole gravel bar itself is changing the landscape so in a very short period of time 30 years 40 years you know, if you rolled the clock back 30 years ago, maybe there would be 10 or 20 people going out there and hanging out and doing the things on the river. It wasn't so impactful. Now you've got people living there throughout the year. They're leaving their trailers. They're running their gray matter, water out of their trailers right onto the land. 
They are ruining this. They are digging up critical fish habitat. And I don't mean just sensitive little area where, oh, there's only a few fish. No, this is absolutely critical fish spawning habitat area and rearing habitat to the Fraser River. And because we're in this corridor that I talked about, is we're, we're going to call it again the heart of the Fraser, whatever you want to call it, the most delicate ecosystem, that whole from mission all the way to hope, that area is critical to the future of us saving fish while we're already in a salmon crisis. So we're in a salmon crisis. So why can't the city of Chilliwack, the province of BC, uh, the federal government, be accountable and responsible to every Canadian citizen and to our fish and say, we need to close this area down to vehicular traffic. I mean, we call this, our, our name for this place is Mad Max. This is like, you know, where Mad Max had the show Fury Road. This is like Mad Max Gill Road. And um, I'm not against people going out and recreating. You know what? Why can't we have some bike trails through there and people can ride a bike? Why can't people go down there and park in a beautiful parking area? Maybe the city needs to buy up some of the land there on the outside of the dike and we create a beautiful parking area. People go in and out. They can walk out. They can walk there. They can take their families there and we can create a facility where maybe we even have campsites in there that are responsible campsites. Small little area where we have a boat launch and we have access to get into the river. There's some balance there but it needs to be common sense approach. And right now, the, both the provincial and the federal government are being irresponsible. I mean, we've been battling this for a few years now and people listen, you know, we're gonna have some, we're gonna have some people here on the river. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna just really throw that out, but I will say the likelihood is in the next two months, we're gonna have the new provincial minister in my boat uh, maybe Finn Donnelly. Uh, the likelihood is within the next couple of months, we're going to have the fisheries minister, the new fisheries minister, Joyce Murray, will be, she's already been invited and uh, we've got a positive response. And we are going to show Joyce Murray in a high water condition, like what's hap going to happen here in the next few weeks. The river is going to get high. And how imperative, we're going to take out a little beach saying, and we're going to take this little tiny thing with Dr. Marvin Rosano and Dr. Ken Ashley and Fish and Wildlife Rex teachers who know so, so much about this river corridor. And we're going to go out and do a little saying with the minister there. And we're going to show that minister uh, or provincial ministers, we're going to show them that here, here's 25 little tiny little juvenile Chinooks right here, right close to the shore in the weeds seeking protection and refuge from all the predators in amongst as the, the branches and the trees are, are flowing down the high river flow. They are all in amongst there in those little fish and how imperative it is that they make it to the Salish Sea and have their journey in the ocean. And then furthermore, we talk about the delicate ecosystem. We talk about then and move forward to the fish farms and how imperative it is. We move those, we remove those fish farms in the year, this year, not renew those licenses and have the ability to say, we're going to make change, positive change. And that's the same as Gill Road. It's only responsible, accountable change and understanding the fact that we are sitting there ruining the most critical salmon and sturgeon habitat. And we are allowing this to happen right within our own community. Yeah. And that really, you know, doesn't bold well to me when it even comes to thinking about 
you know, we need to partner. We need support of First Nations. We need, you know, we, we need the Indigenous people to talk about how imperative this is and to help move, the, you know, together, together, collaboratively, we can put enough pressure on the government and people need to speak out and don't be afraid to speak out. And, you know, people are angry at me for wanting to do this type of stuff. But I'm only one of a few that has a voice that's able to speak and talk about it. And then we back this all up with beautiful presentations. You know, we probably have a 50-page presentation that we can provide and show to anybody as a captive audience and show why this is important. And although maybe not everybody's going to like me for this, again, it's like I know that this is my calling to spread this word and to try to provide better for the next generations because I'm not being responsible and I don't want to be responsible for the demise of the Fraser River and all that it encompasses. That is beautiful. Did you hear about what happened with Carrie Lynn Victor? She was working to restore chum habitats along the Fraser River, I think in a very similar area near Shiam First Nation. Did you hear about that at all? I think that was a couple of years ago now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, I've heard a little bit about her, tried to connect with her, but of course we all have such busy lives. Um, but again, that's the same exact thing, you know, is someone young like her who wants to make a big difference for the river and the land and her people and, and, and whether it's her community there at Chiam and I, and I have been good friends with Ernie for many years. We actually, we, we co-chaired, uh, Fraser River Peacemakers for uh, 10 years and, you know, it was the ability to bring people together on the river and it was, uh, it was the recreational sector, recreational sport fishing sector, and indigenous fishers and representatives from the indigenous leadership that uh, we needed to get together and talk about safety on the river and, and, and when critical things happen on the river that we work together. And again, that's somebody like her who's trying to make a difference within her own community. And we see this a little bit now. I think it's on the Vetter Corridor where... They're working hard. So if they take gravel out of the Vetter River, for instance, some of that gravel needs to be saved for future projects. And they're restoring habitat on the Vetter River. They're building in wood and structure into little over-flooding, over-flooding areas. Okay? So that would be the same as what Terry Lynn has been doing. You're restoring areas that seem to be meaningless but when the water comes up and it comes high and there's this over-flooding of the Fraser River, and I don't mean flooding as in breaking the dikes. I mean flooding of wetland areas that are encompass the islands, the back channels, and all the things. That we need to have that so that there's refuge for these fish. Instead of that, people just want to go drive around and ruin all this stuff. And I, and, I, and, and I understand people want to get out and recreate and COVID has kept people balled up. And it's important to go to the river. But providing, uh, providing the efforts to work on restoring for the future for fish, education, education is huge is educating. Terry Lynn would be able to educate people through her work and her efforts and say, here, we can create a documentary even, short little documentary tells about my work. And that could be instilled through schools or through, uh, you know, I wouldn't like to say that we only keep that into the indigenous teachings. We need to put that into the general public so yeah. people understand. And, and she's a messenger, yeah. you know, she's a, she's a leader, you know, who is understanding in my view some of the stuff that, that I've been lucky enough to be a part of and to do. And we need to do these parts along the way. 
is so nice. It's inspirational to know what she has done and the work that she's done. And, you know, I would only support and say that partnering with people creates projects uh, that can enhance us in the future. So she's on the right road, in other words. I mean, she's doing good work. Yeah, I just, I think it's so wild how much the average person doesn't know. Because when I sat down with her, she was like, yeah, we need to get rid of, like, the blackberry bushes. And I was like, why? And she was like, well, they're an invasive species. And I was like, I didn't know that. And she's like, yeah, it makes it really difficult for, like, um, the native species there to have the natural habitats that they've always had. One of her concerns was um, all the gravel that's coming through that's making it more difficult, I guess, for fish to thrive because it's becoming, um, like, it's starting to wear down and we're not taking care of those areas. And it's so, like, you don't know what you don't know. And when I get this explained to me, I'm just mind blown that there are, A, people that know, but then there's the vast majority of people who have no clue. And I think ATVing and that approach is is going to become more and more of a challenge because I sat down with Lee Harding and he's a biologist and his focus is like caribou populations and his concern is that like we have these spaces up north that like you're allowed to go snowmobiling and stuff and that's creating tracks for the wolves to be able to travel so much faster than they've ever been able to travel before to go and kill all the caribou and so his argument was like maybe wolf culling isn't the solution but the challenge is that we're making it so easy easy for the wolves to kill the caribou because the caribou sink in they're very heavy and then the wolves aren't they're able to run along the tracks and so it seems like outdoor recreation is giving people like a pseudo outdoor experience like atving is like i'm outdoors and it's like but you're not really outdoors you're on a machine and you're shredding through this area and it seems like maybe those people have like i'm sure there's a place for it but it seems like those people have the wrong mentality of maybe what nature is of what their connection is because if you're able to like ride through and you can hear them from very far distances that seems like it would have effects beyond just the habitats it's like a birds hearing that are going to be like i don't want to go over there that's very loud and it's going to disturb maybe natural migration cycles it's going to have other effects and it's just interesting to me that those people claim to be the outdoors people when it's more like people like yourself people like eddie people like carrie lynn who are the real outdoors people like there's like if there's like a hierarchy of it they're perhaps low on the totem pole because they're sleeping in rvs they're 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 sort of disconnected from the nature that they're saying that they're trying to connect with in some way yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I think there's 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 way that we can accommodate many different things. And evolution changes all of that, uh, you know, the technological world. All of these things get changed. And again, we talked about it earlier. You know, we're kind of rolling back the clock where we're planting gardens and canning and, you know, doing some of the old school things are coming back now. And, um, you know, it, it's about some form of balance, and it's about, you know, government having, you know, a common sense approach to management and educating. You know, if we spent more time on the educational tools, especially within the youth, you know, teaching uh, responsible um, 
responsible outdoor ed in school. Not maybe we shouldn't be doing phys ed and volleyball, not that it's not a part of it, but maybe we should be taking a component in our schools and having elders or young inspirational people like Terry Lynn or Eddie Gardner go and talk about, you know, that. Or And, and, and you know, I don't just say Indigenous people going to schools. I'm talking about everybody who can contribute in a responsible, accountable way. You know, you're not going to typically teach a lot of the older people about change. You can talk about it, but we may not see what we need to see. We can we can get an ear and people will listen and they will take a part of that. But who's going to change the future is the youth of tomorrow. It's the young students. It's the teaching them within our curriculum of schools as to the importance of of. You know, maybe we should stop and maybe we should just walk through the forest and maybe we should just listen. Maybe we should just look. Maybe we should just sit and 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 do nothing for a little bit, yeah. you know? One of my concerns, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, it seems like the people who are perhaps more environmentally conscious, um, the, the very vocal minority of those people, they seem um, dead set against fishing, um, commercial fishing. They seem to go perhaps too far in some regards and um, believe that, um, like you sort of mentioned, that catch and release is unpopular amongst some people, um, but it's like a misunderstanding of what catch and release is all about, that they just kind of assume that that's stupid and a waste of time and why are we bothering doing this? And then with issues like they're, they say like, well, I'm a vegetarian or a vegan and so I don't even eat fish, so other people shouldn't eat fish. And there's been a little bit of this movement of like maybe meat shouldn't be real maybe it should be like produced in a laboratory and there's there's been steps in that direction it seems like those are the people maybe I hear the most from but they don't seem to have your expertise of like how these ecosystems function and I've seen uh, some of your conversations about like uh, when there's challenges with like the salmon populations the mindset of the government is like stop all fishing and your response has kind of been like well that's that's not the solution either. This isn't like you're choosing to impact me, but you're not going after like fact, uh, f the farmed fish. You're not going after the real roots of the problem. I'm just a, a small fish and you're kind of coming after me in my business when I'm not the, the problem here. I'm trying to do good on the river. Can you elaborate on kind of your thoughts on like the people who say that they care, but maybe don't have all the information and, and what it's been like to tr sort of navigate that? Yeah, that's that's a that's a broad topic. The uh, you know I, I think I can share a little story. Just recently in April on the eighth, I had an opportunity to take out fish and wildlife rec students again from BCIT. In my boat, actually, I had four vegans, like you know, and 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 these were students that so wanted to come on this adventure. You know, and I and I and I've taken out people who's like, oh no, these fish scare me, or oh no, I don't want to hurt this fish, and no, I don't really want to catch. And I said, you know what? Come on out with us. Give us an opportunity to show you what we do. Uh, you know, the whole journey of everything, the fishing, the culture, the tradition, as well as the catching of a fish and how we treat the fish. And I can honestly tell you that probably ninety nine percent of all the people we have taken out that have had that resistance to embrace an opportunity to learn or to see it through a different lens have absolutely changed the way they feel about fishing. That's beautiful. And, 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 and it's, they don't have to eat the fish, 
But we still need to understand about that fish. And whether it's a salmon or a sturgeon or a salish sucker or, or whether it's a dolly varden, we need to be able to understand. And without some form of science, I mean, the vehicle is really sport fishing, you know, and, and there's nothing against all the traditional knowledge from Indigenous people about sturgeon. And it's all great information. It's all part of the, the whole, it, it's part of the whole landscape of what we're trying to learn. But right now we have an ability through tourism or through fundraising, we have an ability to show people what it is in the river going on on a daily basis if we choose. Build in the value-added component, which is all what's around the river, and change the way people see that they're not so much as haters. There, There is a catch-and-release sport fishing is proven, and we'll prove it again. And if people want us to do, let's get some more money and let's prove it time and time and time again. Sport fishing of sturgeon has a 0.00125 mortality rate. Like, you don't go out to the Fraser River and see sturgeon floating all over that river. They're not dead. They swim away. We give them love. We give them a kiss. You know, we tag the fish that we need to tag. You know, we're putting acoustic tags in, acoustic readers, so that we can see where fish migrate to. We need far more work that needs to be done. Uh, Stomach samples. We need food samples. We need aging studies. The stuff that we had was so old, it doesn't, it's not even relevant to today's world, whether the impacts are on the gravel. You know, there are so many people out there that just don't even understand what we're trying to do. We're not trying to harm the environment or that. And we've got to touch that delicate ecosystem of those fish to be able to move forward in a scientific way to say there is, and could we make mistakes? Could we find out there's juvenile recruitment failure and maybe my business won't even be a business anymore? Maybe we won't be able to fish in the future. You know, people want to direct arms to the commercial fishermen and say those commercial fishermen in the river, in the oceans, they shouldn't be allowed anymore. The commercial fishermen in the area, E. Gillnet fishery in the Inn Fraser, you have to realize that there's three, four generations of people that fish just as there are indigenous people who have handed down fishing spots in their families of fish, just like sport fishermen who have sport fished some of the rivers of British Columbia and Canada of their lives. They're all a part of this component and they all have to be handled in a different way. So again, what you say is, you know, the government's answer is close down the fishery. What are you going to learn from a closed down fishery? You know, what they need to do is, and I said it in a meeting the other day, and, and we're seeing, one, one thing I can say is we're seeing is through this group that I'm, I've invested a bunch of time in over the last three years, it's called the Lower Fraser Collaborative Table. It has Indigenous leadership uh, representing 30 different nations. Murray Ned, LFFA, Lower Fraser Fisheries Alliance works heavily on that. He's the executive director. Uh, we have the commercial sector, the Area E in River Fraser River Fishery that's been, you know, it's been around for generations. Um, and then we have the sports sector as well there, which is represented heavily in the tackle industries and, you know, just the whole thing. And, and what we're starting to see now is we're seeing where we continue to talk about collaboration. Can we fix all the problems that maybe the commercial guy doesn't like this fishery or maybe the, the indigenous fishery doesn't like the sport fishery or we, or we, you know, we cross over on the river and it's not always, it's not always cohesive and nice and we can massage it and it's malleable. It's sometimes it can be challenging and there can be arguments had, uh, or there's disbeliefs or misconceptions. And what we're starting to do is after a th- three years of meeting and, and I've been doing sort of the same type of meeting for, wow, like I, I can't even tell you it's so long. Um, 
But what we're seeing as a result recently is saying, like, we need to understand your fishery better. We need to understand the commercial fishery better. And we need to understand the sport fishery better. And we're not saying that we should have it all closed down. What we're saying is through understanding and collaboration, if we can all work together hard to, to protect riparian areas, to bring fish back, to maybe shut down the fish farms, we have to have some small wins together as teams and as different groups and user groups of, of, of the resource. And we need to come together. And I feel that we're on the verge of that. And once we can make breakthrough for that, we can start understanding a little bit more about where we need to spend our energies and how we need to learn together. And again, this is together. So you got to have buy-in and without people coming to meetings that are such important is the very first time in three years, we invited government to the meeting. And that was this week. You know, we, we, we met without, without federal fisheries. We met without the provincial government. Not that we didn't want them there. We wanted to learn and create a process that was, uh, I think they're all harvesters. So all of us would be harvesters. The recreational sector is a harvester. Indigenous uh, fishers are harvesters and the commercial sector is harvesters. And through uh, good leadership at, at, at the room, we created terms of reference. We created a strategy, a budget plan for moving forward. And we're inviting NGOs in now, other organizations, and we're asking for funding and helping for support so that we can move this vision forward to doing better for the future. Does that make a lot of sense? That makes a lot and, of sense. Do you, and, do you feel like that it's going to be easier to move forward? Can you, can you describe to us the differences between commercial fishing, um, sport fishing and recreational? Because I think for some, we have perceptions of commercial fishing. We have perceptions of sport fishing and they maybe don't get the respect that they deserve because we can easily put them into the, maybe they're less sustainable. And then we think of traditional styles of fishing as like, oh, well, you're just taking what you need. And then we think of the other two as like, well, sports fishermen are, are destroying and they're just, they're doing it self. Like we have perceptions of what we think they are that perhaps aren't accurate. Yeah. So, you know, in a, in a quick matter, we could say that, you know, when we had abundance of fish, there was a, you know, a robust commercial fishery. And this is a, a large commercial vessel, a big boat, typically in, in our river. I can, let's speak just for the Fraser River, because this is where we're really talking about is our sort of an area. So the Fraser River from the Mission Bridge, the Mission Bridge is the tidal boundary. And it doesn't mean that the tide only goes to there. It means that's a boundary that was a cutoff for where commercial boats were no longer to go any higher. Higher. So they weren't allowed to come. So back in the early commercial days, when we had a robust fishery for sockeye, which let's just use the sockeye for it, is they would go in and there was a surplus amount of fish and they would have an allocation for a certain amount of surplus based on a run size. So if there was 20 million, so, you know, I'll just use some easy numbers, 20 million sockeye returning, the commercial sector would get a portion of that. And maybe the government would say, we need this much fish for escapement. Escapement means how many fish we need to try to get to the spawning grounds. That's escapement. Okay. How many fish need to go and spawn to the spawning area? Well, we need 8 million fish out of the 20 million fish. Let's just say 10 million. 20 million fish, 10 million fish need to get to escapement. That means a, a successful spawn for the future generations of that fish species in all those natal rivers. The commercial sector may, they may say, okay, well, we're going to give you and provide you 
an allocation of 3 million of those fish or 4 million of those fish because they're surplus now. They're more than what is needed to reach what we need to have on the grounds. Then, of course, more importantly, first of all, we have to have FSC fish. And that's the First Nations fish for all the bands up and down the river. That's the first and foremost, conservate. So there's a, we have a playing field and there's a rule form, not, not rules. It's a guideline. Conservation first, always conservation first. Okay. That's us. Second and most is FSC, food, social, ceremonial, right to fish based under the constitution, section 35 to sustenance fish for food, fish only for indigenous people on the river. Okay. Then it goes to commercial fisheries when it comes to sockeye and chinook. That's the next allocation if there is the amount of fish in the river system that allows for a commercial fishery. And the sports sector kind of gets the last. You know, although we're open to fishing uh, 365 days a year somewhere for something, we are probably the least on the totem pole. But then again, we probably generate some of the most amount of revenue and conservation. So do you think that that formula is correct? Uh, it sounds like you're sort of challenging the idea that sports fishermen should be below commercial fishermen. No, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that it really matters to me where everybody sits on the totem pole. What matters to me most is that we have a proper accounting and the government is responsible for ensuring that these fisheries have meaning. So... I think part of your question was, you know, how are they different and what do they mean? And, and, and the commercial fishery means a lot to those families that are fishing third and fourth generation. It means a lot. The indigenous fishery on the river, that's FSC or, or a surplus fishery where they're getting an ESSR fishery, a sales opportunity on a, on a run size that's very large. Uh, that's important to have a sales component of that fishery. And then the sports sector, which bring people from all over the world or just to get your family out fishing. You know, my kids went to the river. We camped on the river. We fished on the river. You know, it's part of their upbringing. It's part of what I did. It's something that I wanted to always do all my life. So each one of these fisheries is slightly different in its own way uh, based on, you know, how how they were introduced to you as a young person. If you grew up in a commercial family, you're going to probably be a commercial fisherman on the river. The unfortunate part is we've lost the ability almost to have a commercial harvest on the Fraser River now, like a fleet of over 3,000, 3,500 boats. It's now whittled down to 200 and some boats. So, you know, maybe there's no place for that anymore. You know, I'm, I'm not, but if we have a super run of sockeye, like we potentially could have this year, we could have a super run. It's the super run year. We could have 20 million sockeye show up. You know, I hope we do because it's good for the ecosystem and people are happy when they're catching fish. When people aren't happy is when we don't have any fish. Yeah. So that's when people start to begin to fight and they, they're not happy with each other. And, oh, you got this and I don't get that and I want this, you know, or these fish are mine and you shouldn't be out there. That's where you create the animosity and not understanding which each fishery means to each sector or each user group is what I mean. Yeah. You know, the, the, there is time that we need to sit, educate, and understand better. The government should be responsible for providing that. And, and, and as a sense of what I'm talking about is I proposed the other day at this meeting, I said, you know what? Maybe while we're training guardians and stewards on the river through, you know, money and funding to create indigenous stewards and guardians on the river, 
maybe, you know, to introduce them on the river, to go with them, you should have a blended, a blended field of people working on the river to educate. So maybe you have a representative from the commercial sector, if they'd like to, a representative from the indigenous sector, first nation sector, as well as the sport and recreational sector. So then if that boat goes out and educates people on the river, and I think this should be a really important part of the, to the thing. So we have a surplus fishery. Maybe everybody goes, to Chilliwack one day and we're at Island 22 boat launch and we're taking a survey, a real survey, like a little survey as to how many hours we out fishing. And, and, and when you see a sport person with a commercial person, with an indigenous person, there's no kind of animosity built up, you know, but the unfortunate part, if you've seen two federal fisheries people trying to take all this creel, uh, as in data survey, you know, how, how, how did you fish for today? How many, how many fish, how many fish did you catch? How many fish did you catch? You know, what were you fishing for? How many hours did you fish? It's kind of like the old logbook program from the Salmon Society. We had a logbook program. The amount of average hours put in to catch one Chinook by an average sport fisherman on the Fraser River was about 200 hours. 200 hours invested to harvest one Chinook for their families. And, and years ago, we did this. It was a logbook program. It's how we identified and how we figured out what we were catching in a day in our CPU, our catch per unit effort. It's how that we do the business, science business. So again, these sectors, getting them together and the government said, oh, no, 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 this isn't, uh, this isn't, you know, at the meeting. And then the federal government said to us at the meet to me directly, well, you know, we have our ways of doing our, our assessment and maybe what you guys are going to do isn't going to meet what our our science and data people are going to talk about or what we need for our stuff. No problem. Then let's tailor whatever program it is. Let's bring the people together. Let's do the work. And, and, and we, as a sports sector, have always been known as volunteers. We are some of the best conservationists and volunteers out there. We're willing to go clean up the river. We're willing to fix the problem. We're willing to input money to help, right? Whereas other sectors... Maybe don't have the, 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 maybe they don't have the ability to have that kind of money to help. We as sport fishermen are a really big part of this equation because we have the ability to go out there and clean up Gill Road. We, we go there and clean up the Vetter River. We go out there and want to restore habitat and be involved in all these meetings where we volunteer and go for free. Yeah. I volunteer tons of time and effort for free off of my time when I could be sitting at the river and watching the river go by or, you know, doing whatever it is I choose to do. But no, I choose to provide my knowledge, my my time, and also money to bring money within to our communities uh, to hopefully responsibly understand what we need to do moving forward. And we can't be shut down by government people saying that's not a good lens to look through. No, no, we need to look at every ability we can do to bring all user groups together and have a cohesive way of maybe looking at the future. Bringing people together from all different sectors allows it to be very transparent and it seems more truthful, right? And then indigenous fishers and first nations fishers up and down the river will understand a little bit more about what we're looking at in the, in, Oh, wow. Look at that guy. Well, I thought those first nations guys catch fish all day long, every day, and they get a ton of fish. Yeah. When in all reality, they get very few openings that are regulated by the government to go and catch even their first salmon for their communities. 
You know, it's one of the things that's always bothered me, you know, Quatlin, for instance, down at Fort Langley, you know, applies to the federal government to get, to get a first salmon so they can hold their first salmon ceremony for their small community. But the federal government doesn't want them fishing. Right. So they got to go and get one from the test fishery or somewhere else where that guy needs to go to the river and actually feel that fish going. And then he can translate that story to his indigenous community and say, this is what the first salmon ceremony looks like to me. I mean, if you've never been to a first salmon ceremony and you ever get an opportunity to be at one, it's powerful. It's moving. I've spoken at them before. I've spoken them and given my values of the river, been asked to talk about what I do and how I see the river at a first salmon ceremony and I'm welcomed within that community and we take the bones back to the water and we take the cedar back to the water from that fish but we eat the we eat that fish and how important it is you know I've seen 750 people at a gathering you know and how the indigenous communities work so hard to share that with some of the people and it comes a little commercialized after a while which is takes away from the takes away a, a little bit from me but but it's the importance, again, of understanding that we can all make a difference, but we need to not fight and argue about each other's fisheries. We need to learn better about each other's fisheries. And the government needs to support that, both provincially and federally, allow us to learn and provide good science and data for the government. You know, if we need a monitoring program that takes creel and data we can learn from that because they're going to shut down a fishery. And you know why they shut down the fishery? Oh, we don't, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough capacity. We can't do the creel surveys ourselves because they want it done a certain way. Work with us, work with the different user groups, and create a formula that allows us to do the creel for ourselves. You know, some people will be paid, some people won't. Doesn't matter. We're all willing to do the hard work and, you know, get under there with our shovels and pickaxes and, and, and dig through those trenches and make that work out there. I love that. I spoke to uh, Chris Koo, as I mentioned before, and he used this term citizen scientist. And I love that because there's this feeling if you don't go to university or maybe you didn't do that well in high school, that you don't, that you could never consider yourself some sort of scientist. Um, it sounds like there's a little bit of arrogance from the federal government and, and just people who get an education. There's this kind of default to like, I know, you don't know. So, and there's no even bother me pretending that I could teach you what I know so that you know as well. There's this kind of feeling once you get an education that this is your leg up in life and that you now have this over other people. And I think it's really detrimental to like our community, to feeling like we could understand, like I've gone to law school and the response I get from people in regards to that is like, oh, wow, you must just like see the world through a whole different lens than me now. And it's like, I could tell you how we go about doing the readings. Like I can tell you what the sort of the underlying process of law school is. It's not like something I have that you can't access. There's YouTube videos on on how to go about reading a case and understanding how judges make decisions and how precedence works and how this whole system underlies our civilization. This is not secret knowledge that I now have over you. But I think once you get that education, there's this sort of feeling sometimes of like, well, I earned it and I paid whatever it costs to get my law degree. And then you want to have that over other people. And it, it does us a disservice. And I think there's also a danger 
culture in having separate groups and pitting them against each other. And it seems like there's way too much from government entities to gain from having us infight. Uh, one term that I really, really just don't like is white privilege. And not because white people don't have privilege or indigenous people don't have some advantage. And like, we all have privileges. But the problem with that is it pits us against each other. It makes one group seem like they have everything figured out. When I know when I was going to school, I had friends who were completely white whose dads were beating the crap out of them. That's not a privilege. Like he was not more advantaged than me. And he's still, I can see him on Facebook. He's still struggling with these things, these demons because of what he went through. And so I'm not going to say he has a privilege over me. That seems like we're, you're simplifying it too much. And it seems like one of the challenges within the fishing industry is it's so easy to point fingers at each other and forget that there's this overarching body that's accountable to the people. Uh, but we, we sometimes think of government as like something separate from us. We help form the government. We, with our votes, help make sure that this government is healthy. We hold them accountable. We call them if things aren't going well. You can call your, your local member of parliament. You can call your MLA and say, hey, I don't like what's going on here. And, and the more you do that, the more incentive they have to go to, uh, whether it's Victoria or Ottawa, and say, hey, our constituents are getting really mad at us and we want that to stop, please. And so there's like these processes that exist for a reason. But I think one of the challenges we face right now is there's this feeling like what you have to say doesn't matter and your voice doesn't matter and you couldn't make a difference because it's one vote. And it's such a, such a sad way of viewing the world. And I tried to compare it to like one meal isn't going to make you fit or healthy. But over time, that makes a huge difference. And one phone call to your MLA might not change anything. One vote in a local election might not change the outcome. But over time, you sharing your voice and sharing your perspective is going to make a difference. And if you team up with other people, it's going to make even more of a difference. And so there are avenues you can take to make your voice like resonate and people like yourself like you've done a beautiful job of not trying to separate indigenous and non-indigenous people because that does seem like one of the perhaps paths some people are choosing is like we need to just return everything to indigenous people and like everybody else step away and it's like well you're here now like other cultures are here now we can't we're not we're not shipping them away. Like, they're not leaving. So we have to find a way to work together. And it seems like that is perhaps one of the conversations that needs to be kind of reminded is that we're all people. Like, we all have stories from this river. We all have family members who traveled here. Like, some of the most beautiful stories I've gotten to hear are immigrant stories of, like, I had nothing in my country. And then I came here so my kids could have a better life. Like, I'm, I don't want these people to leave. These people enrich our culture. We, we can learn from the foods and their culture and their stories. And, like, this, this is what Canada was sort of founded on. And despite bad actors, perhaps, in history who had negative viewpoints of Indigenous people, we can all agree that these values of being multicultural, of sharing the beauty from each culture, will enrich us and we can learn from the different stories and the different life experiences of people. And so... I'm just, I'm interested to understand what it's been like to, to start your business because your business is like, people think of like business as like, 
uh, just work and, and, and hard effort, but you've also created experiences for people where they can kind of grow and develop themselves. And, and these are, these will be memories they'll have in, in albums and, and they'll tell stories of how they went on this river. And you've gr- created this from the ground up. And I, I love entrepreneurs because it's always sharing an experience. It's always trying to bring something that was missing from the community. Can you tell us about the journey of starting your business? Tell people what it is um, and, and what that kind of experience has been like? Yeah, well, you know, wow, is it, you know, to think that, uh, you know, later on when I talked to my father, uh, you know, he said, oh, Dean, I would like to start a sport fishing business in 1975. The world was, was too big. The world wasn't connected like it is today. And I remember handwriting letters to potential clients and taking a little ad in a magazine. And, you know, I'm one little tiny boat with one guy who had this sort of a dream to create a, a sport fishing entity within the Fraser River, along with good guys like, you know, in, in my view, has put a lot of effort in conservation and hard work too. It's Fred Helmer who started, who started a business back then. And, and then, and subsequently a number of other people, you know, in, in the years, now you know there's so many people there's so many people kind of starting and leaving it but it was a challenge because i knew nothing i didn't understand about marketing i didn't understand you know and we've gone from writing letters to clients way back when and you know a phone call to the united states was a big phone call and it cost a lot of money you didn't phone people in the uk you know that just wasn't that just didn't happen you didn't connect there was no internet you know, it was like go to a little trade show and or put a ad in a little magazine for a couple hundred bucks, you know, a little tiny little, you know, two by two square and try to get some people interested in what we, we, we have to offer here for a fishery. And along that way, we develop experiences, you know, based on where we live and sharing that knowledge. But the challenge is, wow, to start, you know, one guy, you know, there's no way I could support my family. And I had a young family in those age, in those days. I had a daughter and then I had two more younger kids too as well. So, you know, I had three children and I'm trying to manage and build this and I'm trying to make a living at the same time, support a family and try to look at some sort of a future. And, you know, when I, man, I remember coming back from Alberta and I came to work here for $5 an hour. In my own community, I had to go to back to work. Like as in, I, I left the oil field, came back here, had some money, was able to buy my first little house here in Chilliwack for like $56,000. It's not even fathomable today. And, 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 and then try to build a business, to try to be an entrepreneur, try to even understand what something is about that I know nothing about the industry because there is no... There's no blueprint. There's no blueprint. There's no map. There's no, there's, there's nothing here. So, you know, you learn your way along as you go. And I had, I became a, you know, when I went to work, I went to work in a, in a friends of my family growing up. I went to work at M&H Machinery here in Chilliwack and I became a steel fabricator because I felt it was important to get education, have a trade. And along that journey, they were supportive of me to say, you know what, Dean, uh, go out there and try to market yourself and do what you do. And I was so fortunate to have, you know, good bosses. Not everybody understood that, oh, Dean would leave for a month or two months. And as we built this business, it was a matter of, you know, I would get one month of bookings or I'd take some time off this week or that week. And sometimes it was inconvenient for for the industry that I worked in because they were busy and they needed to make their money too. But there was an understanding. I was very fortunate. And I even took my bosses fishing sometimes because they love sport fishing. So they got what was going on in my head. And, um, you know, we would go before work and catch some coho on the Vetter River. Be like, yes, he would love it because I was a good fisherman and he wasn't maybe as good. But 
it, you know, he learned. And we shared stories. We had time together. So there was an understanding. As we grew this business, it was like, wow, okay, well, wow, we're busy. And, and now we're going to collaborate with another guiding company in town. And, and we're going to do a little bit of work. And then I was like, oh, I, I see a way that I could build a team around me. And we could educate. And then I hired another guide. And then I hired another guide. And then our boat started to grow in size. And we weren't locally right here just in this Chilliwack corridor from, say, Mission Bridge to to uh, Peters Road or Agassiz Rosedale Bridge area. We we started to evolve and we built larger boats with bigger motors and we moved up and down the river into far farther corridors to, to uh, I guess, increase the experience, the vast majority of the area in which we now got to cover. And we also got to fish in new locations, which gave us the ability to create an uncrowded experience. Can I ask, how did you go about choosing those employees? Because you have such passion around what you do that it must, it must have been, there must have been a bit of hesitation towards just bringing somebody on that maybe doesn't share your passion, your vision, the stories. Uh, how did you go about it's doing that? It's a great question. It really is a great question. And I always said is, you know, you can, if you have the passion you will become a you will become a great leader on the river, as in let's just say guide and guide meaning many different ways. Whether you're fishing or you're guiding, meaning guiding and talking about the area, it was the heart for me. I, I tried to watch people and understand people as I was as I was giving them an opportunity and to see whether or not they fit the meld of what I what my values were. So I pulled my values and my passion like you've identified with and say, you know what, Dean's passionate and I am passionate. It gets me in trouble, you know. I just, if you have that, I want you to work for me, right? I, I want that as, as part of that because I can see that because you can go out and, and you can, you know, there's this, you know, okay, to the boat lunch at eight, you're back, roll up at 3.30, back at four o'clock. That's not how I ran my business. You know, yesterday I was on the river. I didn't get back till seven o'clock. I don't ask all my guys to do that or all the people who work for me to spend all that extra time on the river people. But, you know, maybe we're not having such a great catching day and maybe we're not done the whole storytelling that we need to do for the day and talk about the area and the region. So maybe we need to give those clients an extra half an hour, an hour. We don't run it like a business. Our guides actually have heart. They have heart, you know, being able to teach Landon, you know, he wasn't, didn't come from an upbringing of a, of a young, you know, was my best friend's son, right? And I, and I'm friends with the, I was friends with the grandma who's since passed on and the grandpa and, and, and through work connections. And then, and then I grew up with the, with Landon's dad, for instance, Landon Gill's dad. I grew up with him in high school, graduated with him. He was my best friend, hung out with his brother, which would be Landon's uncle. And then Landon having an inspiration to go fishing when he was younger. My kids were, they fished because they were kind of forced to fish. But it wasn't that I'd seen that they they were, you know, they would rather be doing this or maybe be on a computer, but I would make them go to the river. So Landon was more of a guy that didn't grow up in a family of fishing people. He grew up in a family, and it's not that they didn't fish, but it wasn't like I fish. So he started at six and he would go fishing for me, volunteering up at Cultus Lake to be in my boat and to be with me. And then I would take him to Chilliwack Lake and then we would go to the river. And then he had the ability, once my team grew so big and, you know, back into the late nineties, early two thousands, 2006, I probably had an amalgamation of a number of companies working together under one leadership incorporation. And we had 28 boats and guides. 28 boats and guides. And, and I identified at that time it was it's just too big to manage. Uh, because of my 
I would call it a little bit of OCD issues, uh, you know, and I don't call it an issue. It's actually, it's just being detailed. And, and, and because I'm detailed, I need to be able to touch the components. I need to know what's going on in the office. I need to know what's happening every day on the river. I need to understand my guides. I need to make that phone calls. I need to understand all the clients. And I have to be receptive to all those people that are making this, this, you know, putting the gas and the oil into this engine and making it all blend and work. So I identified the fact is I was run down. It was too hard on me. It's too many people. Um, I dissolved, uh, I still own that corporation. That corporation still runs as an entity, uh, but I dissolved any partnerships I had. And I have now 15 boats and guides. I have four office staff uh, that work wonderfully where we don't always perfectly get along, but we're cohesive. And, and they listen to me because of my knowledge, my time, my business understanding, things that I've learned, all the mistakes I've made have treated, you know. And each and every person, whether it's in the office working hard they're all an intricate part of this of this beautiful sphere that we have here working together whether they're in the office they're on the water they all have passion they all give back they all understand this isn't a job this is a privilege this is an honor to share the resource to share what we have and i see it from when i'm in the boat with clients where somebody will say wow Alyssa in the office is amazing like she just did everything that we asked there was nothing that was too much of a question that we could ask she was always attentive she answered the call and and as you we talked about government before and, and and the way the government is and it really irritates me a lot because what happens is I'll send an email about something really concerning to me on the river and it's really important and all of a sudden I don't get an answer and it's a week and then it's two weeks and it's like hi Alyssa who is my executive assistant Alyssa you know can we follow up like it's been two weeks I haven't heard anything and I I learned one thing about business and it was attention to detail and as we talk about this journey, wow, how hard it was in the beginning, how many hours I spent. And I still spend a ton of hours working every day um, on everything that I do. Uh, but what it was, was the rule in our office is very simple. Every single email that comes in on every single day, on a business day, Monday to Friday, is answered before the end of the day. Every single email. Now, now that's Rick as my VP of operations, uh, you know, Leanne, receivables, Barb doing some of the work in the office too as well, myself doing office work, Alyssa doing office work. And that is the, I feel is a huge success to our business. So we take out all the problems and everybody can rely on us and we say, we don't need to wait for an answer. All we need to say is if we don't have the answer to the question that day in the office, we just say, thank you. We received your, we received your email today. Uh, we're addressing this issue right now, or we're, you know, we're, we'll be back to you first thing tomorrow morning. We just want to acknowledge that you sent the email to us and, you know, we'll call you on Monday morning or whatever. And even on the weekends, we answer all emails. And although it may not be in the same time frame, you know, if there's a problem with a trip, somebody phones, everybody gets a message to me, I sort out all the problems, Alyssa will answer the emails on the weekend, Rick will answer emails on the weekend, I answer a ton of emails on the weekend, we answer social media things. And it's all become a component of, I, I feel our business is successful 
because we have attention to detail and we're not afraid to answer the questions or to go out there and you know, I think in an in industry that I'm in, it's hard to drive business right now. It's hard, you know, to figure out the right thing to put your energies in, whether it's, you know, marketing on Instagram or Facebook or taking ads out. And it's a really complex um, roadmap to the to learning. And it's part of the reasons why I was I was really drawn to being a part of the Stolo Business Association and 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 asked through some meetings with Stolo Community Futures, Mike Watson at the time and Rosio Zelinsky and Shannon Smith, uh, you know, who I got to meet with numerous times and they said, Wow, you know, Dean you do a lot of things, you do a lot of work and we need to figure out something and you know, we want you to be a part of something to do with Stolo Community Futures and one thing and and, and they and, and what was born was a, a thing called Stolo Business Association. And I ended up being the vice president of that. I met many great directors and many great people in my in our short time as a as a kind of a career move with the Stolo Business Society. It's five years, it would be in the sixth year. But what we did was and it, it lays back into this is is it was about uh, mentoring and helping indigenous businesses startup businesses and other businesses to give them some of the tools and to learn about what it takes to run a successful business and it's one thing to get government funding or however you get or you want to do a startup but it's a whole nother ball of wax trying to learn how to run this because in my view the way the world is today it was a lot easier back in the day when we could make a phone call and write a letter now you got to be on social media, you got to be on Instagram, you got to be on Facebook, you got to have a website, you got to manage all this stuff, you got to micromanage all this stuff, and it creates so much inter turmoil into a person's mind and brain that I'm not even sure how anybody can even muster up enough strength to do all this stuff in a day. And I remember that. I remember working 20 hours a day. I remember working day and night. I remember being up sending an email to the UK at 3 o'clock in the morning because that's only 11 o'clock in the UK in Staffordshire or anywhere over there in the UK. It's eight o'clock. It's 11 o'clock there. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'll have a client of mine, oh, Dean, you're still up. And for me, it's like I still have work to do. And in those earlier days, as I was learning and growing the business, it, I could not afford the ability to keep adding more people to the office. I was the office. I was the on-river guy. I was the guy managing all the guys, teaching all the guys, you know, making sure those windows are clean and those boats and those floors are clean and creating that beautiful, magical experience. That was what my, my belief was and instilling that into the values of all of these people. Uh, you know, one of my longtime guides, he was going to retire this year and I had a nice little chat with him and Michael, he, you know, he came to me as a fishing guide. And over the last couple of years, he said to me, you know, what, Dean, I, I came to you as a fishing guide already. Uh, but when I got to hang around with you, I got to be out in a boat with you and I got to learn from you and you teach me and guide me. I'm not a guide on the river. I guide my own people. And as in... He said to me, he said, wow, I thought I knew a lot. And he said, when I came to you and I watched all the things that you've done and all, all the, you know, I knew nothing. That's what he said. I knew virtually nothing in comparison to what I know now. And I talked to him last winter and early spring and he was going to retire and not fish anymore. And I said, no, you're so valuable. You're so valuable to sharing experiences with people. You know, I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to stop doing this. There's no need for that. And, and you know, he was out yesterday on the trip I was on yesterday. And um, 
you know, at the end of the day, he, you know, he did good. He had a good trip. It spreads lots of great knowledge. And at the end of the day, I sent him a message and said, you know, Michael, man, you know, just in the last seven to eight years, you've come so far. You know, you, you, you've learned, you're just, you've turned your whole thing around. You're, you're like, to go out with you is an absolute experience. Like, it's an experience to go with you. And he's like, thanks, boss. I love you. You know, and although we clash times, you know, I'm, I'm maybe too detailed at times. And I, and, and I understand that. But again, the point of this whole thing is, is the amount of work and effort put in to run a successful business is, in my view, quite overwhelming. And it takes a certain amount of certain type of people one thing i can say is about you know indigenous people in general and it's just a you know it's a nice ploy for indigenous people is that indigenous people are natural born entrepreneurs in my view and they just need to be given the tools you know and and that's the great thing about things like stolo community futures or the stolo business association or other other places in british columbia that have these unique uh, abilities. And I think, you know, SCF, Stolo Community Futures, actually was one of the first people that they're lenders, they're, they're growers, there's mentors. And that's why the brainchild of the SBA was born to do that, was to help to give these tools. But I think Indigenous people are like such entrepreneurs. They just unfortunately maybe didn't have the time or the, the ability to get all that education to understand what it, how to run the successful businesses. And I got to tell you, it's been a real journey for me. Um, and now, you know, I feel that, uh, you know, COVID was not a really good thing for our business. It was terrible. We really suffered, uh, you know, immense losses. Uh, but uh, the thing is, if you continue to work hard through these tough times, uh, you will become resilient. And that's another that's another lesson of what the world will throw at you and how business has to adapt. Um, nobody got laid off in my business. Uh, wow. We were able to save all the jobs. We worked hard. Honestly, to tell you the truth, in COVID times, we were busier in the office than we have ever been in the history of the company. And a lot of it wasn't good. It was refunding money. and But we kept up the communication with all of our clients. And that's probably helped us to come out the other side. As well as, you know, we took it upon the, what I talked about earlier is that fellow named Ron Fink who taught me back in business in the days is the time when business is stale and the economy goes bad or something like this pandemic happens is when you need to go and make the effort. You need to spend the money. You need to go out there and keep working hard. If you have the money, spend money. And I did that with when we developed the the domes, the Fraser Canyon, Riverside domes on, on that beautiful canyon property of mine. And it's separated. You don't notice that you're, you know, you're there and there's a house on the other side of the creek. You don't even notice it because there's enough trees and stuff that you can't even almost see the one dome experience. And, you know, last weekend was a beautiful one because we had two guests. There was a couple in and it was a family of four. I got to take the people fishing and I picked them up, take the jet boat up and I picked them up right on the shore of the beach at the property there and they come walking down and they see and, you know, I, I spent a really nice long day with them and then they went back and had a nice steak and they were sat around the fire table and I have a wood-fired hot tub and, you know, they got to take it all in. Uh, you know, I have a, a beautiful bathroom facility for them, a giant rain head with a big window out looking into the forest area if you want the window open and you can see it, it's seven feet tall and it's warm and it's comfortable and it's all, the furnishings are all beautiful. Um, I want I want to get to the domes. I really want to dive into those because I think they're amazing. But I want to slow down because you said something that I think is so important. It's so easy to get lost. Um, I'm a huge fan of the UFC. Um, Dana White, who's the uh, CEO, the president, um, he didn't lay off any of his employees during the 
this time uh, of the pandemic. He pushed through, and you did the same. And it, it feels like we go through sort of ebbs and flows of like our love for capitalism. People have their own viewpoints, but at the end of the day, businesses support people. They take care of the staff are often relying on that paycheck. And I, I sincerely think with inflation going the way that it is, that we're going to see a recession, that we're going to see more tough times ahead. Um, there was a lot of government spending, and you can agree or disagree on, on how money was spent or whether it was done strategically. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to see more tough times. And it's been a long time since 2008. And that's when I was first looking for work, was during that 2009-ish time. And no one was hiring. And right now we see so many places hiring. I don't even know if people realize what a recession feels like. It, it feels like something that can get kind of forgotten about. And COVID impacted businesses. And so for so many people who maybe work for nonprofits or they work for the government, they don't know what that's like to have somebody at the helm who's kind of responsible for whether or not you go out of business or you continue to succeed. And I don't think that business owners get the do they deserve during periods like this. Like pl places are hiring and nobody wants to work for them. That is crazy to me to think of like the job, the work that goes into creating a job because it's not like you open your business and you hire 15 people. It takes a lot of work to go, okay, now I'm, now I'm at that point where I'm making enough money where I could support somebody and could I support them for a year? Do I need to do it contract work? What makes it like it's not just an automatic decision, but when you're not an employer, it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy for you to think like, oh yeah, well, why aren't I making $20 an hour? Why aren't I making $25 an hour? And it's like, well, you need to bring in, justify that revenue coming into the business. So if you're willing to hop on social media and start marketing the business, if you're willing to start getting the word out and like telling people about it, or if you're willing to do things to justify bringing in a job, it seems like that part of people is sort of missing. Because like I remember watching movies where it's like, oh, I'll, I'll clean your stuff for you. I'll, I'll wipe down and mop the area for you so I can have this job and like, I'll earn it. There's that sort of feeling missing. And I, it scares me when individuals like yourself make such sacrifices for the staff to try and keep them on because this, the selfish, what our idea, like our image of what a business owner is, is to lay everyone off when times are tough. But when people don't do that, it's not like they get anything big in return. It's not like somebody comes down and goes, oh, you were just a really, really good person who made kind, thoughtful business decisions and kept the community that you've created together despite there being financial incentives for you to do otherwise. We don't do a good job of rewarding that. And so it can end up being just kind of slipped past, which is like, oh, yeah, and I, I managed to keep all my staff on anyways. And like, to me, I think we just need to slow down and recognize recognize how important entrepreneurs are, but that they create jobs, they allow people to share their passions. Like it sounds like your guides do the work they do because they love it. But you create, you facilitate that opportunity that they can't just do that independently because 
from what I would guess, is you have a lot of overhead costs with the boat maintenance. That seems like it's going to be one of the biggest challenges is if a boat has a problem, I can't even imagine how much that would cost. But making sure that you have the right boat for the right season, for the right circuit, like that's going to be a huge overhead investment. And then to have 15 and then to have even more than that at certain points, that's a huge cost where it's like, I could have this boat or I could have a staff member. And you have to make these tough decisions. And so I'm hoping you could just maybe elaborate a little bit more on what that meant to you to be able to continue that for your staff? Like, what was that like to go into the pandemic and go, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can not to lay people off when, again, you could say, oh, it looks like this pandemic could go on for a while. We'll just shut everything down. I'll lay everybody off and then I'll just sit back and wait for things to get better. And then if there's an opportunity, I'll bring them back. You chose not to do that. So could you just elaborate on what that journey was like? Yeah, but these are, these are all heartfelt people that work with me to create the team and and, you know, I, I've never been good at, you know, not supporting those around me. Um, and knowing that they rely on this as their paycheck. I mean, the world's different today, you know, when you talk and touch about the economy. I, I'm like you. Like, I so feel that we're going into recession. You know, I, I feel that with a with a with with an inflation rate higher than it's ever been in 30 years, I see gold going up. I see oil going up. You know, I, I see house prices almost to a point where, it, you know, it's, it's not even possible for a youth to even buy homes today unless you have parents that have money. I mean, it's just impossible to really, in my view, to live. And we talk about this and, and you know, I, I could sense that there was some concern within the office staff because, I, you know, when pandemic's going on, we got more time with office staff than we got with guides because, you know, you have a 50% loss in your revenues based on we're cut right down the center. We've lost 50% of the business right off the top. So, you know, I mean, our losses were probably, you know, and, and not, the, you know, maybe the stress was even more. I'm not sure. But just in loss in revenues in two seasons was $1.4 million of revenue loss. So... You know, what people forget is, is that, you know, when you have a fleet of boats, you still have to insure them. It doesn't matter whether or not that boat is going to work or it's not. Your 50% loss of revenues is a 50% loss in revenues. And how you're going to cut up that pie to sort out all the rest, $20,000 with the boat insurances, then you've got all the trailers that have to be insured. You know why? Because next week that boat might have to go to work. Or next week, that boat, two boats have to go to work. The boats still have to be insured. So the fixed costs are the same. And, and, you know, I remember Alyssa coming to me and saying, you know, wow, you know, Dean, you created a bonus program for us. It's an incentive in the office to sell trips at a higher, a higher ratio and to hit a plateau because you feel the value of that experience is worth that much money. And if we do that, there's a bonus system for us. Every time we sell that experience at that price that you've made for us, a guideline of prices in this sheet, I get a bonus. And I remember her coming to me and saying, you know, wow, you know, I'm, yeah, well, that's sad about the pandemic, and I, I'm so sorry. I, I feel so bad for your loss right now because I see she's directly listening to the cancellations and can we have our money back. And I chose to give all the money back to the people that, that said they want their money back, and there was lots of them, you know. And, 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 and But on the most part, I saved a lot of money over the years. I, you know, I, I grew my business in a, in, a, in a responsible way so that as I moved forward, I typically tried to buy things as I could have the money for it and didn't lay out a lot of money in loans or things like that. So I, it was a real slow process growing this long-term business. Now, having Alyssa come to me and say, you know, Dean, 
uh, wow, I guess that I'm not going to be getting my bonus this year. And she didn't mean it to be like, oh, sad, and I'm not getting it and throwing my face. She just meant, you know, it's kind of sad that we got to that. And then all of a sudden, the stuff kind of crashed. And now we're kind of in the position. I said, no. I said, I'm going to tell you right now, if you still sell the trip at whatever price or, or area that we want it to be in, you're all getting your bonuses. Yeah. It makes no difference to me. You know, we've still done the job at hand, and that's my problem that, that we have a loss. I can't change that. But what we can do is we can continue to work harder. And the guides didn't get as many trips. You know, we were segregated with land land areas. So, you know, anywhere from Laidlaw or wherever Hope this way could not go to the canyon and do a canyon trip because we had travel restrictions. Oh, wow. People from the interior could come down and do a Fraser Canyon trip, but they weren't allowed to go and do a mid-river trip where the price might be less money than a canyon experience. So the, the Vancouver people or the Vancouver Island people couldn't come up and do a canyon trip because they weren't allowed past the travel restrictions. Right. So we had a lot of we really weird parameters to our business that we were trying to work through, through, you know. I didn't even think of that, yeah. Pro protocols and... And, you know, then where people lived because, you know, my main residency is up in, in Yale in Dogwood Valley. That's my that's my where my license is. But I also maintain a, a home in Chilliwack, you know, that I've had forever and grown up here. So, you know, for me to travel back and forth, I stayed in the canyon because we canyon adventures are what I love the best. That's my thing. Like, I love that canyon more than anything. I fished down here my entire life. And now I, my, my energy is there. So, you know, we really had to work within our own business and then some of the guides that weren't trained in the canyon because there's only a handful there's only six guides that are trained to create canyon experiences and that takes time to develop that like you can't you know we talked about it earlier a little bit how long does it take honestly to tell you the truth to develop a fraser river fishing guide and tributary guide it's a two to three year process that's from zero learning how to run a boat learning about all the stories learning about where to fish at different water levels all the different techniques learning about the whole gamut takes forever you know i was very lucky to be able to do that with my son in three months it was a challenge but you know as we talked about having blood maybe it was his you know, maybe some of the things that were instilled in him when he was younger made him to have the ability, maybe through the bloodline, to absorb it in a better way. M mind you, he got to spend every day with me and, and be able to do it. And and, he, and he's a brilliant fishing guide today, you know, and there's just something in him that runs through his blood that says he's a natural at it. So the challenges of seeing so much negative going on with the pandemic, and I said, okay, guys, you know, you know, maybe the guy down in Mission being my guide can't come to the canyon. Maybe he wasn't trained from the canyon. He's lost a little bit more revenue. Some of these guys had to go out and do a little bit of part-time work. But all the trips, they all sustained, and those guys are all still with me today. All of them. And I had to take it on the chin, and I lost a lot. Yes, I did. But we are survivors of that. And that goes to show with good leadership, in my view, is, you know, we we worked as a team. We came together. Everybody understood, and it's... You know, in today's world, people don't want to lose their jobs. They need those jobs to sustain their own. They're young. I have a lot of young people, and I look to them to say, you know, these are the next leaders of our future. These are the people that could run my business in the future and keep this legacy going. And I need to be good to those people. I, I need to do whatever it takes me to muscle up enough strength uh, to support them all through business and take the losses that we're going to take. And I'm not here on a crying towel. I'm just saying we got no support, really, not a lot of support from the government. I mean, there was a business loan that we were able to take, you know, a portion has to be paid back. 
And there was a little bit of grant. You know, I, I'm lucky that, um, you know, I had, I had good support to Indigenous Tourism BC and Indigenous Tourism businesses, Indigenous businesses in general, uh, especially ones that were run on and around the reserves or ones that, you know, didn't pay tax or did this or that. There, there's a really a big problem with some of those Indigenous run businesses because there was no government funding to help them down the way. But people like, uh, Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, for instance, um, or Indigenous Tourism of BC have been big voices in asking the government for support to support Indigenous businesses like my own. And to realize, you know, my son is Indigenous. He works within the business. I feel that all of the people who work for us as our team are all involved in an Indigenous-run business. And I think that we needed to have maybe some more support. It's a, it, it kind of a pittance as to what we had for any sort of support and created to the, the revenue loss that we had. It's not even measurable. And so many Indigenous businesses folded up due to complications within any type of funding avenues and, and other businesses. I, so I'm not segregating this as only Indigenous. I'm just saying that all businesses, there was many businesses that struggled. Uh, but the government had the ability to help out Indigenous businesses who are, in my view, some um, critical part of, you know, moving forward with many different things of whether it be a drip, undrip or reconciliation. It's about helping those those really grassroots businesses that need to be supported through the thing. And I, I just want to say that, you know, it's been really good to me. I know still the community of futures reached out to me numerous times. People would say, Hey Dean, there's this maybe grant available that might work for you or indigenous tourism. BC said, you know what, we're going to get a little bit of support from the federal government and, and we're going to help. So you got to apply, you got to jump through a few hoops. You got to do a little bit of work, but we're willing to give you a little bit of uh, seed money for a project that you wish. And that's where it kind of that, the whole Fraser River, uh, Fraser uh, River Canyon domes, Riverside domes came up. It was that we have an ability now to have a little tiny bit of funding. Let's take that seed money and let's create something where we could create an accommodation, unique experience on the water, whether people fish or they don't fish, doesn't matter. We don't, we're not asking people to fish. We're giving them an opportunity to take a tour if they wish, or to take a fishing experience. And that money through that resiliency of all the efforts in which we we made to hold our money in, support our own team, has created an opportunity for us to now move onward and build the Fraser Canyon Riverside Domes. Okay, and, let's and get into support it. support the teepees too as well. So the same thing, right? I find what you've done through this pandemic so inspirational because I agree with you. I think that we are hearing more and more about reconciliation. And then the question that I get asked the most is how? What does it look like? How do I get involved? How do I learn? Where where do I go? Where where do I get information? Um, because my fear is I want people to understand the atrocities that have taken place throughout history, but that's not all we are. And that's my big concern is that people are like, where do I learn more about Indian residential schools? And it's like, you should learn about that if that interests you and, and if you feel called to learn about that. But you should also learn about the beauty of our culture uh, pre um, colonization and like the values that we carry because like 
you think of people who have been through like World War II. They're not just the Holocaust. They're more than that. They are resilient people. And that seems like the piece that sometimes gets forgotten is that we survived, we endured, we overcame, and now we're making a comeback. And that's all very positive. And your business really highlights that. It gives people a pathway to learn about the beauty of the culture, maybe that they didn't expect. They, they're okay with learning about the fishing, and then all of a sudden they're learning about the beauty of Indigenous culture. And it's, it's nice because it's not in your face the same way maybe having to watch a movie or read a book or watch a documentary is going to be because it's more just a part of an experience. And so can you tell us about these domes? What, where did the idea come from? They're brilliant. For people just listening, um, hopefully we can put some uh, pictures of them in the video. But can you describe these domes and how this came about? Yeah, well, you know, a good friend of mine up the road on my Yale property in Dogwood Valley, um, she worked for Seabird Island for many, many years managing the dental program. And her and I became friends because I would be jetting around up on the river up there and doing fishing excursions. And she was a, she was, she's known as the sturgeon lady and she fishes from shore up there and she's brilliant and she's passionate. Actually, she takes, she's very good friends with many of the First Nations communities and she worked within Seabird Island and managerial, you know, helping and managing people in the dental thing. But her passion was being at the river and, 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 and she ended up getting into some medical concerns and issues that didn't really allow her to to work as well anymore. Uh, and 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 she's still working through those things right now. Um, but what she said is, you know, Dean, uh, and and I've known her for a lot of years. Uh, Colleen Hume is her name, a wonderful lady. Uh, she actually works for us doing all, all of our shore fishing trips. So she, we, there's another component. It's not, it doesn't have to be a jet boat. You can be doing kind of a cultural tour and then go do some sturgeon fishing from shore on these private beaches in the canyon or some of the public ones. Anyways, and, 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 and she said, you know, I've got to think of, you know, being diversified. What am I going to do? I'm going to have this sort of a medical pension here a little bit. And then, I, and then, and what am I going to do? Like, you know, I'm not crippled. I, I, I need to work. And she's a, she's a work, hard worker. And she said, you know, I, I think, I think we should do some accommodations up here. Let, let's, I'd, I'd like to build it. I'd like to have some teepees here. And, and, you know, so she went to Yale First Nations community and talked to, you know, we're, we're friends with numerous, she's closer friends with everybody than even I am. She's really ingrained in the family. And I make my way in because I've been up there and I, I was good friends with Chief Hope for many, many years. Probably he was a chief there for four decades and him and I created a relationship, a, um, a responsible mutual relationship of hard work, honor and trust. And, uh, and she's best friends with Bob. And so she went to the community and said, you know, I think about doing some TBs. And they said, Oh, well, you know, up here we had pit houses and, you know, and that kind of thing. And, 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 you know, so, but she says, you know, I, I'm not here building a business that I want to have a teepee and saying that this teepee is part of the culture here in the area. I just want a teepee. So she started to research it all and she built the, uh, she, she, Ended up finding the people who made the teepees for the movie set, uh, Dancing of the Wolves, wow. the Kevin Costner film there. And, and, and it's down here in Oregon. And she researched all the different teepee ones. She bought this beautiful 26 foot teepee, 550 square feet. And her vision was luxury glamping right on the riverside because she owns an acre on the river. Uh, right at the river's edge. You just look down. The river's right there. We actually pick people up right at that residency too. And she's only like, as a, as a, as a bird fly, she's five properties up the river from where I am. 
So that was her vision. Uh, I worked on her. I co-partner, co-partner, co-marketed with her. I brought the indigenous tourism flair into it. So ITBC embraced it. ITAC embraced it. Indigenous Tourism Association Canada, Keith Henry and, um, you know, um, uh, all the people within Indigenous Tourism BC, and we did some some visits. We we actually had Yvette John come and sing and do an opening, kind of an opening prayer and a song, uh, blessing the teepees. We got the blessing from Yale you know, First Nations, and Chief Hope did some interviews with us at the teepees, and and it opened up, and it was kind of a really cool thing. Like people just like were blown away by it. Global News did a little piece on it, and we market it. We already have the ability to market because we're marketers, and you know so. So in the because she went through the pandemic, so we have a 22 foot TP and then a 26 built a washroom facility separate to that, and 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 it was sort of like okay, well now in the pandemic we can't have people two different types of families can't have a family in the 22 without a separate bathroom. You need and so there was challenges. So she only booked the 26 foot TP based on unless you're a family and you want both TPs. So now since then moving forward, we've now created a whole new platform for the 22 foot with its own bathroom facility and its own outdoor living kitchen. And then we, then together we built, uh, we bought uh, wood fired hot tubs that sit right at the river and you're looking down on the river from the hot tub and you would fire it and you know a little fire obviously if there's fire season we don't do fires we do a gas fire and a small little gas fire out there like a campfire um so, but wood like wood what like how, what wood fired yeah wood fired and then and then electricity and custom made king size beds and then local some of the local first nations donated yell first nations donated some of their some of the things like you know chief hope came down with a dip net we talked about the dip net and inside the teepee is some things hung there that were you know um part of the area you know that were indigenous uh kind of artifacts and things from the area and um it just became an overnight success in my view. And, and it ended up being sold out in the first year and sold out pretty much in the second year. And, the, and so that's now three years in the running and, that, and that's open just this weekend for the large TP. And then, and it'll be another week before the other TP goes up or it's up already, but before it's uh, marketable and we wanted to get all new pictures of it all, but it really was a, a warm welcome by, um, you know, the indigenous community, people from around the world to get that type of experience. We weren't selling an indigenous cultured experience for the area. We were selling something that was like from my heritage. Okay. So, you know, the Cree and the Métis people were separated from the reserves, it, you know, and, and I think it's really misunderstood. You know, people think, well, you know, your Métis or your Cree or my background and, and, and my lineage goes way back and it's all fully documented, you know, and, and even within our own cultures and our communities here and amongst the river, I'm looked upon slightly different as in, as so are many of my friends that are indigenous, but maybe not. And, and it's not a them against us. It's about, it's about ensuring that we're not creating an indigenous experience there. We're creating luxury glamping and we're not depicting from any portions of but that's the way Métis people were. When they were separated from their areas that they lived in their reserves and pushed off, they lived in teepees and they moved around as they needed food in this area or that area. It was part of the culture. So for me, I identify with those teepees very closely. For Colleen, it's it was an opportunity for her to market something that gave her an ability to make a living and it's right on the river and we provide experiences. So whether it's shore fishing or boat 
fishing or just going to the area and hiking up into Hope by the Spirit Caves or, you know, walking down, going to Yale, historic Yale and understanding about what all went on in the pioneers in Yale or going to the water and go gold panning. We created that unique accommodation experience that could be whatever it is you wish it to be. But in no way are we saying that that's, you know, a, an absolute First Nation experience from that area, right? That's not what we were charging this about. It's about part of, I'm already a tourism-based company, yeah. so this is about tourism and, enjoy, and people getting to the river again, people gathering at the river, families. So then what happened is it became successful and we got into this full-on pandemic and I'm like, wow, I, like I'm losing so much in revenues. This is like bad. And then, of course, we got some seed funding from Indigenous Tourism BC and, and they said, well, okay, if we give you some money, what would you do with that money and what does that look like? And we put together plans and projects and I said, you know, I got this property here, three acres, a thousand feet of river frontage. And I just go over there and I cut the lawn and the lawn was beautiful and it was all blackberries and mess, you know, and then, and then I have all the trees right on the river's edge, all the riparian area, all intact and beautiful and the trees and, and it, you know, it's kind of like wilderness and it has, you know, stinging nettles and all the things that are in the little wilderness area. And I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to do something. This is like, you know, we got some time because we're not on the river every day. We're working and we're trying to figure out how we're going to get through the pandemic. And, and Colleen's sort of like, yeah. And, and she says, I think you should make some domes, something cool. I've seen some domes and you should do these geodesic dome things. And I'm like, what a unique, cool idea. Yeah. So we started to research them and then I purchased them. Uh, a couple of years ago, I purchased them and then with the space and then we developed the space there on the property and we created this beautiful, in my view, a beautiful facility. Oh, it's incredible. Nestled into the, the trees in the wilderness. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess you could say it's commercialized a little and I wanted it to be absolutely luxury. I wanted it to be like you're going to a hotel room in Vancouver and better and you're doing it and it's luxury glamping. I mean, you know, sometimes a little millipede runs into your room or, you know, this or that happens. I mean, we're not, it's eco. We want it to be They're com they're compostable toilets. Uh, so it's eco toilets. There's no flushing toilets. There's, you know, there's running water in them. There's heat. There's beautiful gas fireplaces. There's king size custom bed. I had couches made that were with a chaise and a full queen size pullout for people that were all custom made. And we did, uh, you know, I pretty much did all the interior design and all the bathrooms in the utility room. So it's there. So it's people just roll in. They come in a separate entrance. I have a big shop up in the back. They park there and they look forward towards the river and they, and they come in. And it was like, to me, it was a no brainer to develop it so that we had an opportunity to uh, fight what we were going through in the pandemic. And, it, and it's another way of, of focusing, staying busy. And we completed the project last year about, and I think we had our first guest on August 2020th. The only unfortunate part of last year is we probably could have extended our season, you know, a lot longer, but without all the pictures of finished products, you don't get an opportunity really to market. Right. So we pretty much lost all of, you know, 2021 for any marketing ability. And, you know, we got a bunch more pictures and some videos and a bunch of stuff going on. So that made it even more challenging for our 2022 season you know, because we needed to ramp up marketing now. We really needed to work hard on the marketing. And and, and we're, we're, we're there now. 
uh, but we still got things to do. We needed to wait for the greenery of the springtime and, and the lawns to be developed back. And, and, and then we, and then we ended up getting, you know, some flooding because my creek flew, uh, flooded over top of my road and we had to take the road out. Uh, but we created a, like a atmospheric river in my own yard on that side of my property outside. And it created a little hole in the bottom of my property. And some of the water ran through underneath the domes and created some movement of gravel. And it, you know, I had some big holes on my property. It was really bad. So we've worked really hard since early spring. And, and then our winter was tough. We had six feet of snow in my property, six feet of snow at the domes. We could not even mark it through the winter time. Wow. And all created, you know, simply put, because, you know, some of the catchments in our road area were not maintained by the road people. And uh, so anyways, that's caused me a lot more grief. And, and again, that goes back to, you know, sending emails and having people work with you and people ignoring your need for help. Um, and, you know, I always say is, listen, you know, we need to make some money back. So we need everything to be perfect. So I had to work really hard this spring to get the property back to the area in which to, to the way it kind of was prior pre sort of pre flooding and all the winter from having all the snow. So it's been a good spring already and we were able to market and we're going to do a new film. Uh, uh, we're going to stage the whole place with people enjoying their time. And we're going to do a really nice uh, local tourism has uh, Chilliwack tourism, a great supporter of mine and, and hope tourism. And we're going to be doing a really big, uh, super promotional video about touring in a boat and coming up and staying in the domes and barbecuing and being with your family or being with couples or being there for Valentine's day or mother's day and, and just escaping the busyness of every day yeah. and, and no TVs in there. So if you got a TV, you're bringing your laptop or you're bringing your, you're bringing your iPad, but we don't support any TVs there. And we want it to be, you know, a big, big fire pit that people can be together at. And we chop all the wood from local areas and I harvest the wood as a harvester. I harvest, uh, because of my heritage, I have a harvester card and I harvest wood up in the forest and I bring it down, chop the wood and provide that to the people so that they have that and for the hot tub and, yeah, and, and you know, so it's really we're just at the beginning of marketing the domes and all about it. So we're hopeful to have a successful season. Um, it'll take time to market and fill it up. And I, you know, I don't really even doesn't bother me that it's not full anyways. I kind of like to walk over there and and look at what has been created and to say what nice, how nice of an appeal that is to me. And uh, like I can just say that last weekend. We had those guests that there was two ladies that came. One of the ladies works for Finning Canada and she is a lease manager for Finning Equipment, believe it or not. And then her best friend came and her friend was now leaving from British Columbia and flying back and leaving, going to live in Quebec again now where she, her roots are from. So they spent a weekend there and the comments that they made, they did a vid, they did a short little video. And that's what we're encouraging people to do to help us with the social media, you know, create a, and it will enter you into a contest for a free stay. So come tag us in the thing, create your own little pictures or your moments and your memories, and then use that tag us in that our fishing company, as well as our, as well as our, uh, our dome company or our TP company. And to be able to tag all that and to talk about the great memories and gathering at the river and your experiences. And those girls did a bang up job. They did a, they did a, a little reel and it was brilliant. And then they did pictures and they, and then the other family that I got to fish with the Sumner family, the 
18-year-old boy, 16-year-old boy, the mom and the dad, they were blown away. They just said this whole thing from the office to the communications to the guiding of the river, catching fish, the historical, cultural part of the traditional tour, as well as staying in that dome. Those domes, they said, were this whole thing exceeded their expectations. They just could not believe when they walked down the stairs in that big stairway that we have to see what those domes were like and then to create that entire experience for a whole weekend for them. They were blown away. Like, for me, that was like, like you know, a little breath. I get to breathe and I get to say, yeah, Dean, we did it right. And we and we did it as a team, you know. Ellis had input. Rick came and helped. My son was here doing electrical because he's an electrician and he had to go to work for his dad for free. And, you know, like, this, this brought the team together and we worked hard to get this thing going and upright. And it gives us the ability to market tourism, again, in a different, through a different lens. Not only that it has to be fishing, it can just be sitting around a fire talking about the stories of the river and where you brought up or all that kind of stuff. And and also involve Hope, the Cascades, the Canyon, and really bring, uh, you know, bring some marketing tools that we have and, and helping within their community. Some people say, well, you know, you're not directly, you don't pay taxes to Hope. No, I don't. I'm Yale. So I'm considered outside of that electoral area, regional district, we pay our taxes. But but we're bringing people there. Yeah. They shop. They come to Hope. They go there to Mountain View Brewing. You know, they may go to the coffee shop or the Blue Moose or they go to the Rolling Pin Bakery. And they, they you know, the tourism value of dollars, dollars spreads so far. You know, so again, we don't need to go always and harvest a fish and say there's the value of that fish. The value of, value of tourism and sharing experiences, whether it's indigenous or it's a sport fishing experience, it doesn't matter what it is. That value of those type of experiences is probably one of the best generators of money and funds that gets spread across communities in, in all of British Columbia and Canada, the world, period. Yeah, yeah, just the memories that you get to make. Um, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurship. Like, uh, I wrote a paper on First Nations economic development with the belief that you don't understand what it means if somebody doesn't get to chase their entrepreneurial dreams. Like, we all miss out. Like, had you been forced to play it safe or not received any support, we would have missed out on this idea. Like, the memories that these people have made never would have existed. And I think we miss out on that. You could have a hundred of the, the the domes, and I still don't think it would be enough in terms of, like, the memories that that creates for people, the opportunity to experience something simpler, something outside of the hotel industry. Like, we get so used to... I just interviewed Squatch Eyes Lodge out in Vancouver, and they're trying to create each room so it's unique. And it's like, when did we lose that? When did hotels need to be... Every room looks the same, the paintings are tied to the walls or bolted in. When did we stop caring about having, like... Where where we're staying be an experience and i just stayed there i just stayed there oh wow the outdoor adventure show i made it i made a point of staying there i stayed in the water room oh wow my time and i was at the and i wanted to stay there i wanted to have that experience you know that it's important to me i i mm. I, I promote that 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 hotel i promote that and i mean they have you were you were there i'm assuming Did no i just there? interviewed uh, okay, caroline well, Thompson. i gotta go when you go there you know they have all that the artists have done work there you can buy work from the artists the creators the the carvers the you know you can it's all downstairs in the store you get a whole experience of staying in the room you get to read the book as to what that that room meant yeah. and and what it's all about and I, you know i had a wonderful stay there myself and it's 
it's again it's all of what your you know you envision your stay to be like and how you embrace that stay and i i just can't say enough to, to what you've said there about you know that indigenous entrepreneurship you know is having that ability and having those tools to be able to live your dream to try to work hard and, and i mean you know it all boils down to hard work you're going to get out what you put in and, you know, you can't sit here waiting with your hands out and expect the money just to drop into your hands and everybody to support you and do all your work for you. You have to go out and you actually have to do what you say you're going to do. And you need to grow through the hard times and learn and, you know, fall down and skin your knees and skin your hands and get back up and get back to work. Yeah. You know, you got to do those things. you got to go through the tough times to enjoy some of the good times. More importantly of it all is it's about those things that are created and knowing the stories that are told and... Uh, you know, uh, you know, one of my very best friends lives in Staffordshire, England, uh, Martin Jackson, you know, a guy that I've been in. My life has been changed by that fella. You know, he came over here as a client uh, 25 years ago. You know, a UK guy flying from Staffordshire to come here. He spent 45 days a year with our business every single year. Okay, he was an accountant on a little accounting firm in Staffordshire, uh, Sutton Coles Hill, and he came over here. He came in April, he came in July, August, and then he came again in October, just not only to enjoy uh, the fishing, which he loved to do, he fell in love with British Columbia. He fell in love with the things that we did. I got to spend so much time with that fella. 70 years old, a little bit of skin cancer right now. He's been away for a couple of years because of the pandemic. He's coming back this August for two weeks. He's staying with me. He's he's actually in all the years, and no offense to anybody, he is the only client that stays with me. Like he literally, like, no, I don't mean my accommodation. He actually stays with me. We cook together at my house. Wow. He goes and monitors with me on the river. He, he understands all my First Nations connections on and off the river. He's embraced all of those. One of the things he did because I do a lot of fundraisers and conservation work and try to do things for other organizations. And I use the platform of sturgeon fishing typically to create funds to do things like work for the Wild Sheep Foundation of North America, to work for the Wild Sheep Society of BC, Guide Outfitters Association, and at times in the past, BC Wildlife Federation and Ducks Unlimited. Some of the things that I created as a fundraising model to help them with raising funds for what they do. And I had Martin come one time to a big banquet I do and so usually it's a two-day event and, you know, you got about 56 people out fishing in boats, but we talk about conservation and do our thing and we raise them a bunch of money and we work collaboratively together to do this, right? And so Martin gives this speech and he told, he, he was up and said, oh, you know, I, I want to be a part of this, Dean. I'm like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. So he got up and he takes this tape measure and it's like, you know, one of those tape measures from Fabricland and it's 10 feet long. And he talked about the tape measure of life. And, and it was about, okay, well, um, here's our tape measure of life. And, you know, I just want to talk to everybody about how beautiful it is to come here and be here in British Columbia and enjoy this. And I've been coming for so many years and, and, you know, not, I've, I've seen everything here that I, that I, that, you know, I've been up north to the Skeena with Dean. I've been, you know, I've been many places with Dean since I've been in British Columbia. And I just want to give back something. And what I can give back is a little lesson about the tape of life. And he rolls out this tape and he says, okay, so I'm 70 years old. And he says, okay, so that's, let's go to 70 inches on the tape. And we cut the tape off at 70 inches. He says, okay, now we got this to 120, 70 to 120, 10 foot tape. And he goes, oh, the life expectancy of a, you know, of a normal person is probably about 
you know, let's just say it's 85. And he clips the tape off again at 85. So now he's got this piece holding from 70 to 85. And he says, okay, so that's my age now. And this is what I've got left to live. You know, maybe I'll have more, maybe I'll have less. I don't know. But this is kind of the average. And he said, I love to come to BC. And I love spending my time fishing here. And, and he said, so let's just say you spend a third of your life sleeping and not doing the things you want to do. So let's clip off a third of that. So now we've got 85, 70, 15. We've got another five years off of that. So now we've got 80, 70 to 80. There's 10 more years. So I've got 10 years. And in this 10 years, um, you know, the likelihood of me coming over, I want to come over here and spend my time. He said, that's all you have of your life left to experience what BC has to offer to come fishing, to come out here, to enjoy this. And he's talking to all these people who are big players in conservation, participants, and he's telling them about the value. And that's all we have left of our life. And, and, and to encourage people to go out and chase and to do the fun things that you want to do and create these memories that we talk about, whether it's on the river or going to Vancouver Island or you know, going up to Cumsheen and experience rafting or going to the Okanagan and, you know, going to wineries or doing whatever it is you choose to do in life. In his, in, out of his lens, is about spending his time in British Columbia and being with good people and fishing and creating experiences on the river. And, you know, him and I cook together. And that, that still today reminds me of how the people looked at that and how short our journey really is. And to understand that the value of what we can take to slow down our lives, to enjoy this and spend the time and the money, because in the end, the money means nothing because we're gone. But the memories about what we've created and what we can do to change uh, our experience in life means a lot. And I'll never forget what he said to me, you know, and I, and, I, and I now tell that story a lot. You know, we talk about that story. And it's not just to encourage people to come fishing with us or to have experience with us because we want them to do that. But it's a good story yeah. in my view. Absolutely. That is uh, that is amazing. Can you tell people how they can connect um, with the, the fishing side and the dome side? Where, where would they go uh, to, to have these experiences? Yeah, well, first of all, it, it's simple. My business call is my business name is called Great River Fishing Adventures. Um, and and our office runs from eight to five, Monday to Friday. There's always somebody in the office. It's six zero four seven nine two three five four four. We're registered in the yellow pages. Uh, we're highly available on the website, uh, greatriverfishing.com. Pretty simple. Uh, social media. We're social media. Uh, we, we work hard on social media. I think we have sixty thousand followers on our Instagram account, which is uh, our Instagram account is called at fishing sturgeon. Any of these platforms can be reached through the website. Um, we have another Instagram account and a Facebook account that is called uh, Fraser River Fraser River uh, Fraser. Fraser Canyon Riverside Domes, at Fraser Canyon Riverside Domes. We have the at Fraser Canyon TP Escape. All of these can be reached through Facebook, through our website. We have a uh, we update our fishing report, which talks about accommodations. Uh, it's kind of called Dean's Dino Blog. And uh, we use that to highlight some of our specials or the things we're doing or to attract people to new business. So greatriverfishing.com pretty much gets you anywhere you want to navigate. Um, at Fishing Sturgeon, a big social media platform that we talk about everything. Fraser Canyon Riverside Domes and at Fraser Canyon TP Escape on Instagram. And there's Facebook pages attached to all of that. So 
Uh, we're very attentive to details and phone calls and emails, and we get back to everybody right away. And we we would love to share, uh, you know, our knowledge and, and our ability to see things uh, maybe differently than most people would look at a tourism business. Um, I guess through our lens and, and have the ability to showcase uh, where we live and what we do and, and, and the things, I guess more importantly, the things that we can do to help with, with the future and, and conservation moving forward and to protect our wild salmon and our fish and all that surrounds our rivers and areas. That's beautiful. So for the domes, do they book, th- I saw it on Airbnb, do they book through Airbnb or is it better through oh, yours? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, that's a really good question. You know, most people wouldn't even pick up on that. You can book directly through us. Airbnb okay. is only a platform for us. You know, eventually probably we won't even be on Airbnb yeah. and nothing against Airbnb. But We'd they take a slice of your pie unnecessarily. They take a slice of the people's pie as well as our pie. Okay. So they're winning on both ends. So this can all be done directly through our office and uh, again greatriverfishing.com and my personal number is on there my mobile number is on everything and attached to everything as well as our business number and of course email I always encourage people send us an email we're going to get back to you right away leave your phone number if you like we'll pick up the phone we'll talk to you about all these types of experiences and what we can offer and we'll just we'll we'll talk you into it actually if you're hesitant we'll talk you into it and along the journey is we will be competent and showing you how important this business is to us and how much your experience means to us. And we'll do that through showing you through the way that we keep in contact with you. And what we do is we create an experience for you and we'll make sure it's as it's, it's good as it could ever be or even better. It'll, uh, on the most part, I would say we exceed most people's ex- expectations always. I'm absolutely confident in that. I'm hoping that we can perhaps um, just conclude by talking about how people can make a positive difference when we're talking about conservation, because it's actually one of the questions my partner had, which was we were watching uh, the upco- the trailer for the upcoming documentary, Heart of the Fraser I think that's correct. Um, And she was like, well, what can we do? Because the thing that stood out to her is she wants to make sure that that river, if there's projects to help maintain the river, that she can support that in some way. But there's there's lots of ways to show your support for conservation, whether or not it's sending an email to your MLA, donating to um, like the Wild Salmon Defenders Alliance. Um, So like... What different avenues can people get involved in conservation? What would that? What would you recommend based on working with so many organizations? What would you say they can do to show their support? Well, I, I think first and foremost for me is, you know, people just have to jump in and get involved. Like, you know, everybody sits on the outside. Well, not everybody. A lot of people sit on the outside and say, what can I do to help? And that's the greatest question of the world. What can you do? Well, you can make change. You can make positive change by jumping in. So I say it doesn't matter whether you belong to the Fraser Valley Illegal Dumping Alliance or you belong as a member or a donator to the to the Wild Salmon Defenders Alliance or whether you're a member of the Fraser Valley Salmon Society or the Public Fisheries Alliance or the Chilliwack Fishing Game Club or, you know, the Vetter River Cleanup Coalition. Uh, it's a matter of immersing yourself and, t- you know, taking your boots off and your socks off and jumping in the water and making a difference. Uh, you know, it's it's us who are responsible. It's us who can make change. And it's us that can show through leadership. And it's our commitment to changing the way the world will be in the future by getting involved. And every one of those platforms is a platform that you can do. You can create your own. You can be as simply put as going to the river one day with you and your friends and picking up a bunch of garbage and or, you know, or changing something 
to you know not ruining any any uh, riparian areas or anything but being responsible and even going and talking to somebody and saying you know what hey you know this is really highly sensitive area for fish and fish spawning you could educate through even talking to people and awareness and spread that on your own social media platform and say hey me and my friends went to the river today and we did some little bit of cleanup and every little piece of cleanup matters. Every time you send a letter to support an organization, in my view, that is trying to do good, it's a letter of support. It could be a letter from you that says, you know what, I had a chance to interview with you, Dean. And me and my partner decided we wanted to write this letter in support of your efforts in cleaning up and protecting the riparian areas of the, of the river. You can phone your MPs and your MLAs and you can write them letters. And that takes a lot of time. And sometimes I feel that if, you're, if, you, if you don't have that direct connection to your MLA or not willing to withstand the, the onerous system of trying to always get, you know, get their attention which I think can be hard, you know, if you're not the right person, sometimes you're not getting their ear. And so simply writing a letter, in my view, doesn't always help now. It's a matter of going out, making a difference, changing that, and also including in being involved with some sort of an organization, in my view, that's doing good. So I say, if you have an extra $10, you know, be a member of the Fraser Valley Salmon Society, who has had a history since 1984, to do all the good work. You know, you don't have to be an active member all the time, but you've attached yourself to an organization who does good. And I'm not promoting only that the Salmon Society. It could be the Wild Salmon Defenders Alliance, and we're going to go out on a little field trip, and we're going to talk about the critical area in which salmon rear in the Fraser River, or going to an auction and a fundraiser and doing your part. So there's many different avenues, and it isn't always money-driven. If you know what I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, how often do you go out and like to me, like what's $10 to people in today's world? What's $10 to be a member? What's what's a donation of $100? We created a lifetime membership for the Fraser Valley Salmon Society when I was the, when I began to be the president and said, oh, yeah, I don't I don't need your $10 every year. and I don't need to bother you every year. But what I do need is you as my member or my vote or my supporter for the rest of your life. So we now went from like no lifetime members, $100 to be a lifetime member of the Sam Society. We now have a hundred, over 100 members that are lifetime members now yeah. for only $100, a one-time thing. And I know it's, a, it's $100 may mean a lot to somebody, but I'm saying that's a lifetime vote forever. Yeah. And making that difference by just going and sharing some of those experiences on social media saying you know and you don't have to be on social media you could write a letter to the editor of the paper to jennifer feinberg and you could say you know this is something that's meaningful to me and my partner and we went to the river and we made a difference we went and picked up a bunch of stuff or we went there just to look at what's going on there and we, this is our opinion you, you know what i mean so none of this costs money it just means people got to make an effort and that's my concern in today is, you know, there's not always enough people. Everybody's crying wolf and that there's a big problem with everything, but you got to have the boots on the ground. you got to have people wanting to immerse themselves in this, which then full turn down the road. If we look at, you know, if I could visually see 50 years down the road when I may not be here, could I see that, wow, we made a positive change for the people of this country, the youth and the gen generalization of all the next generations to come, and we can actually change that outcome by, the, by what we do. You can actually make a difference. And each and every person that we talk to or gets to listen to this has an opportunity to change the outcome. 
Yeah, I think that that is something people just need to feel like there's this feeling that we're like we can't do anything, that we're like not able to make a difference. And I think that it can feel so discouraging to learn about the challenges the river's facing. But you can make a difference. And again, you might not be the person who fixes all the problems, but you are a part of the solution. And that's so much that gives your mind a piece of ease that we seem to be lacking right now. Again, I just think that so many people feel like things are not going well, that things are getting worse. We talk about biodiversity um, like, and that being an issue. We talk about climate change and people are just like, there's this weight on our shoulders of like, oh my God, where is this going to end up? And I think that that can be really scary, but you can take steps to be a part of the solution. And I think that individuals like yourself, I don't think people who fish or people who hunt get the credit they deserve in terms of like they're the ones fighting for the environment most of the time like um, I'm pretty sure it's the same here in Canada but I know in the US when you pay for a tag or something that money goes back into conservation efforts it goes towards trying to address the issues which is far more money than the average person who's just complaining about the environment not being the way it needs to be these like people like yourself are involved in trying to be a part of the solution and a lot of it isn't paid and a lot of it is because this is your home this is where you you want when like personally you want to be proud of the river and be able to look out and say this isn't filled with garbage but on another level it's like you also have people who are taking these tours with you. You don't want it to be disgusting and gross and be like, yeah, and we're just going to eat this fish connected to this, like, bunch of garbage. Like, that's not a positive experience. So, like, there's so many levels of your involvement in trying to improve the experience people are going to have, improve the waterways, that we we sometimes forget that, I think, and think that the best thing to do is just complain about things. And that seems to be so easy for people to voice, oh, we need to be doing more. And then it's like, what do you know what, what's going on? And it's like, no, I don't need to know any of that. I just know we're not doing enough. Um, I know one person who was like, oh, we need to have like for, forest police officers. And I was like, oh, like conservation officers. And they were like, yeah, but we need more. And it was like, you just found out they exist and now there's not enough. Like, how do you know? You didn't even know. And so I think that it's good for people to be able to hear a story like yours of of sharing experiences with people because once they, they experience it, there's like a commitment to it. There's a, wow, maybe I have a responsibility. Maybe I can do something. And I think that that's... That's the story we need to hear more of for people. And I'm, I'm grateful that there's someone like yourself giving people these experiences because I don't know if you saw, but we're giving, um, we're diagnosing people to go out into the outdoors and we're like recommending yeah, that as yeah. like a prescription. And it's like, where are we where that's not the instinct that we've, we've lost something where we need to be told to do that. And individuals like yourself make it exciting to, do, to go do that, to go connect with nature, to humble yourself again. I'm sure that there's beautiful starry nights that you can experience again if you if you attend these domes and it gave me a lot of hope to to see your work uh to see these social media platforms that you're on and to go like wow this person's doing something they're giving some people experiences they're giving them memories they're giving them a reason to fight because when you hear about all the problems we're facing it can feel like this is not going to end well but when people have that buy-in that experience they're committed and i think that when we have people like yourself, they just, they remind us of how important that is. And 
There's just, there's, there's not enough people like you who have not only the business strategies, but the commitment to people. And you can see that the way you treat your staff, um, the way that you try and approach being detail-oriented. You have to be detail-oriented. It's your business. It's Your name is stapled to everything, whether it's a good experience, a mediocre experience. It's on everything because at the end of the day, that's what impacts whether or not they come back. And so it's a huge responsibility that business owners like yourself take on to make sure people have memorable experiences. And and each time you hire out or you bring someone else in, you're taking a greater risk that the experience might not be what you want it to be for them. And if they have worse experiences, then they might not care as much as they could. They might not invest in joining organizations to protect these things. And I think that we're just, we're so blessed to have individuals like yourself who are expanding in times where everybody else is closing down to be taking those risks on people on the tourism industry to be betting on society. Um, I, I just think that we're we're so lucky. I've learned so much from this conversation. I hope we can sit down again because it's very clear to me we've scratched the surface of your knowledge and expertise, um, but it's been an absolute pleasure to sit down with you today. Yeah, well, I, I can say the same. And I, I just think that your grasp as to you know, being so young, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm very inspired. I'm blown away. You're already an elder, and you're, and you're so young. Um, you know, it makes me emotional actually to think about it. And um, uh, you know, I, I don't say I have the solutions for everything. You know, some people love me, some people don't like me. I, I can't change any of that. What I can know is, is that I feel that the work I do is honorable. It's heartfelt. It's important. And I think, you know, we are part of the prescription of what people really need. The prescription needs to be written that you need to come out and you need to enjoy what we have to offer. And there's many things around me wherever I am, whether I'm in the valley or I'm in the canyon or where where I'm in Lytton or Boston Bar. There are so many things around us that are meaningful. And we need to embrace that in these tough times because I think I, I think a lot like you, I, I feel that we are on the verge of something not really good happening, economic downfall, some sort of more distress that we're going to get in the world. And, and I feel that we have to identify with that. And so to have the opportunity to sit down with someone like yourself, who I've, I've looked at a bunch of your interviews and seen all the people you've interviewed, first of all, it's a privilege and an honor to sit with you. Second and most is to get the message that I'm trying to send out. And I think you're right. We've only scratched the surface on what maybe I have to say. And, and um, I, I, I would sum it up at, in saying, you know, one of the things that happened to me the other day at a meeting, and, I, and I'm surrounded by people. There was a guy there that was 84. There was a fellow there that was in his mid-70s and, and, you know, people in their 50s. And there was the odd young person, you know, maybe uh, a handful of people maybe in that you know, 25 to 38, 30, 40-ish range. And then there's me at 58. And I sat at the meeting and we talked about all this gathering together about these, you know, First Nations, commercial, uh, sport people and the journey that it's been. And we talk a lot about Fraser River peacemakers and, and, and you know, a 10-year run that we had. And we dissolved that whole thing because, you know, after a while, things get, you know, we're meeting once a month and, you know, it just, things just fall apart eventually. The processes fall apart. So you got to be always looking to create new processes, which is, in my view, this Lower Fraser Collaborative Table. I sat around the meeting and I talked about, you, we did introductions and I got to tell you, I sit around a table and introductions took over two hours. Wow. Okay. And there was questions they asked about, you know, who are you? Uh, you know, what brought you to this process? Um 
uh, what what is your history, organizations that you belong to, and I'm there telling a story as a 58-year-old guy, and I talked about the first First Nations dialogue meetings that we ever had back on this river, and first of all, I remember Nick Passock, a, a local here, he's in his 70s, and he's the vice president of the Salmon Society, and he was at the meetings as a guy to contribute his knowledge. Uh, we had uh, Lester Muscle uh, here from uh, Squaw Reserve here, and then we had Chief Hope came from Yale First Nations. There was other leaders, uh, maybe June Quip had come or Ernie Cray had come. You know, many other people that I can remember that came to, to this thing. And, and that was so many years ago that I started in that process realizing that we had to overcome some barriers between, like I said, I choose to fish with a rod and a reel at this time. I'm Indigenous, like, you know, some of my ancestors and other people who have been in this area of the river. And just because I'm not from Stolo territory originally in my descent, it doesn't mean I'm not a person from the river. So although I choose my platform to fish with a rod and a reel, I'm not any different than someone fishing with a gill net or how it is that, you know, maybe at one time they dip net or they had a fish weir or they had a soap trap and a little net that they used on the river back in the day. I'm no different. But what it made me feel was is that, wow, at 58 years old, I'm talking about a process that I started with people and volunteered for again. And, and remember, this is all volunteer for me. I volunteered in a process that not one person in that entire room even knew about. Right. And, and that got to show me that, wow, some of these guys that have been involved in the fishing industry for that many years didn't even know that we sat down and looked at those exact same visions of what I'm still doing today, three processes later, and we're still having the same issues, the same problems, and we're now starting to blanket that together and blend and understand there's a need while we're in crisis for fish here in this Fraser River and protecting fish that we can identify and agree there's a crisis. Mm -hmm. How we're going to get to sorting that out is something we need to do together blended. And it's not going to be figured out as to the silos that the government has put us in over the years. You know, they like to put, as you reflected on earlier, put us in these separated silos and try to sort out the problems. It's not going to help. We're here together now, yeah. battling together for the survival of the Fraser River and the future gen for the, this generation and the future generations. And if we can put that together and we can move forward in a positive way and keep this process rolling, I think there's hope. And, uh, you know, I think you said it, I, I seen some of the notes and it was like, um, I, I told this story yesterday when I was on the river, the journey never ends when you share the passion. And, it, and it's my words I came up with and I put it in a book, a 50 page book that I created for my friend in Staffordshire, England about his memories, 50 page book I built him. And at the end of that book, it wrote my scripture, the journey never ends until you sh when you share the passion. That's what I'd like to leave this conversation with. That's so beautiful. And I think we're lucky to have individuals like yourself who commit years, years and years. Like Eddie Gardner was like, I've been doing this for like 12 years now. And it was like, there are people who kind of hop on issue bandwagons and then hop off. And it's always the new thing. When people commit themselves like you have, uh, it sets a huge example for other people to think long term, to commit to an issue and follow it through to, to its finite end. And I just want to thank you again and say that we've been basically done three and a half hours. Wow, it's unreal. It feels like it's been 15 minutes. Well, I appreciate you again coming and sitting down. Thank you, Aaron.